The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. Yes. Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. We're back with a second full season of Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. Here on Subgenre, we are showing attention to those underappreciated, maybe even sometimes unrecognized film subgenres you forgot you loved. Drama, comedy, suspense, oh no, no, no. You can do so much better than that. In Subgenre Season 2, we're sneaking a long, hard look at one of my favorite movie subgenres, Charming Thieves. They're stealing our money, they're stealing our hearts, and we've amassed a collection of films across multiple decades that we're ready to bring to you starting right now. In this, the first episode of Subgenre Season 2, we are cracking the lock on one of the twistiest, most narratively delicious, and sexiest art heist cat and mouse capers ever committed to film. It stars Remington Steele himself, Pierce Brosnan, as our irresistible heist man with a hot $100 million painting, and Rene Russo as the no-nonsense investigator out to bring him down. In a film by whip-smart action movie director John McTiernan, show me the Monet. It's the 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. And joining me via Zoom is a veteran of subgenre, subgenre season one, episode four, I think, where we took on the submarine film Crimson Tide. She's a TikTok star. She produces podcasts, and I'm blatantly trying to steal all of her followers. You may know her online as Kavatica. I know her in real life as Charlotte Moore, now the recently married Charlotte Moore Lambert. Welcome back to subgenre, Charlotte. Hi, Josh. Happy to be here again. Again. Yeah, you, again. You, did, you did it once. You couldn't get enough. You had to come back and do it again. I'm back for more. Oh, I man. got greedy. I made off with it the first time, and now I'm seeing what I can get away with the second time. It's how you get got. <laughs> I've upgraded since then. You've got the a, you got a brand new microphone and everything. I, I love this. I got a whole thing, man. I got. I mean, the people can't see it right now, but it's not just me at my dining room table with uh, an iPad and some glue. It's like a professional podcast. I love that. It's almost like some kind of professional podcast. <laughs> You're back on this show. We're not going to call this professional necessarily here, but, but you're back on whatever this thing is that I do. It's and, professional? And, uh, what? It's Why professional. Is it no professional? Sure. It's, it's, sure. It's professional. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so what I do here, as, as the intro kind of says, is we take these subgenres of films, these subcategories that most people don't even remember exist, and we, we kind of break them down and find films in them that are fun. And in the first season, we did submarine films, you know, subgenre, may as well start on the nose and do submarine films. And truth be told, you know, that could have been a thing unto itself. The original idea for subgenre was really, let's just do a show about submarine movies. But at some point along the line, somebody talked some sense into me and said, no, maybe you want to talk about other other movies and, and other subgenres. And so we're taking on a new one this season. Well, and it's funny because everybody that I've told about subgenre was like, are there enough submarine movies for him to do that? And I was like, well, I know he's got at least like six. (laughs) We managed to come up with eight. That was fine. Okay. It was fine. That's season. That's good. We're going to try to come up with eight this season on what our new subgenre is for season two. And if you haven't figured it out already, everybody, we are doing charming 
thieves. Um, I'm perfect for this. Yes. Charming thieves. Let me let me talk about this just for a second and explain what I mean. Because I, I we went into the submarine season. You know, I'm putting air quotes up, but putting, you know, submarine films, not films with submarines in them. There, right. I sort of have this internal you know, rule system set up for what was a submarine film. And I know right. I don't know that I fully articulated that in season one. So I sort of had to articulate it piecemeal throughout all of the different episodes. Mm-hmm. I want to get ahead of that on this season. And I, I want to talk you. with you about charming thieves and what that means versus just talking about any old heist movie. First of all, I think we have to establish once again for the audience that I am essentially a film Luddite. But I mean, somebody who has style, panache, sex appeal, somebody who is not afraid to get caught, that's sort of part of their swagger. Yeah. And often a charming thief kind of wants to be seen doing it, even if they don't necessarily want to be identified and locked up for it. You know, they're happy for people to see them make a getaway or, you know, see them in the act. They're magnetic as a result. It's it's pure distilled confidence. That's the word that comes to me when I'm thinking in my mind about, oh, movies with charming thieves and confident, magnetic, panache. Swagger. Swagger, right? So don't get me wrong. Heist movies are dope. Heist movies are kind of my jam in addition to, you know, submarine films or whatever. But you can have a heist movie. You can have a dog day afternoon, let's say. But Pacino in that is not necessarily a charming thief. He's a thief. No. But he's not. He doesn't have that kind of I spend my days sipping uh, champagne and, and cruising around the Riviera sort of feel to him. You know what I mean? You know, especially if you're talking about a movie where it's like a, a smash and grab situation uh, or where, the, you know, the whole point is to not be caught or somebody has been blackmailed into doing the heist and it's, you know, the little guy or uh, there's some grittier, dirtier conspiracy behind the whole thing. And it's not at all about the personality of the thief. It's about the plot of the film, why the theft itself is important and not why that character is interesting necessarily. And heist films being as great as they are, if you can add that extra icing of just this cool as ice, doesn't care if they get seen or not because they're smarter than you anyway sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That in my mind is what makes a really awesome, charming thief movie. So that's what we are going to cover this season. A lot of films come to mind. I'm not going to spoil any of them right now, but just know Mm -hmm. that uh, that you're going to get a full season of these from a lot of different arenas, not just kind of your run-of-the-mill Charming Thief movie, if there is such a thing. So so make sure you stay tuned and subscribe to Subgenre and listen to the whole season. I like it. All right, cool. So obviously, uh, we are kicking off the season with the Thomas Crown Affair. And, and we're by the way, we're talking about the 1999 remake of Thomas right. Crown, not the original from Days Gone By, which we will get to uh, in, in just a little while. We're, we're talking about the one from 99. And it is a movie that I have fond memories of. I wanted to start the season yep. with it. It's awesome. That's Big why same. I wanted to start the season with it. It's awesome. I'm really happy to be the one to help you kick this off. And I'm happy that I'm doing this movie because I, I also have very fond memories and those memories have been somewhat recontextualized over time. We will we'll talk about that more as we <laughs> get into this. Well, then let's dive right into it because I'm excited to start talking. So let, let's go ahead. Yeah. I'm going to let you go ahead and set the scene for us. Tell us about this remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah, so I have not seen the original 1968 film of the same name, which starred Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway because I'm I'm terrible. I have no, but, no, wait, I haven't seen it either. I haven't seen oh, it either. I have oh. only seen this one. I have never seen the original. Okay. And so we are in the same boat. I think we just lost a lot of subscribers. We just, lost just now. So People many. are going to be like these Philistines. <laughs> 
But this one was released in August 1999, which means I would have been 16 for about a month. And I think that was probably part of my formative experience with this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It had a $48 million budget, which I don't know how that compares to other budgets at the time. To me, that sounds kind of a low budget, even by late 90s standards. Yeah, that's mid-level. When I rewatched it, it felt very much like kind of a gritty indie film. But I think Mm. maybe that was just a function of how the cinematography looks to me now. I'm, I'm not sure. And then, yeah, it stars Pierce Brosnan from from James Bond and Remington Steele, which I never saw. But Remington Steele was one of those things where if you talked about Pierce Brosnan in the late 90s or early aughts, anywhere near a woman of a certain age, by which I mean my mother. Mine <laughs> that as woman well. Would, that woman would always be like, oh my God, Remington Steele. And I was like, all right, I don't, I'm 16. I don't know what that means. Uh, yes, my my mother was the same. I watched Remington Steele because of my mother when I was younger. And I it's basically James Bond as a TV series with a little extra something for TV. But the entire time he's playing the character, everybody's going, oh, one day he'd make a really great James Bond. And then voila. So he did. Uh, and then also Rene Russo. And yes. uh she was super big in the like late 80s, early 90s was kind of her heyday. And one thing that I really appreciated about this film is that I think when she filmed it, I looked this up, I think she was like 41, 42 mm-hmm. when she filmed this. So she was older than Brosnan when she filmed it. Now that I'm coming up on, I'm closing in on 40, really appreciating that. <laughs> And then another person who's in it, who's not really a major character, but is major to me, uh, is Dennis Leary. Sure. Who I was obsessed with his comedy at that point. He was like the first comedian that I ever really paid any attention to. I love him in this. I think he's great. The cast on this is phenomenal. Like it's crazy the, good. For the time, phenomenal, and just generally phenomenal. Like like holds yeah. up over time. Pierce Brosnan, Dennis Leary, and, and Rene Russo, and, and yep. everybody else who we'll talk about who's in it. The director on this, uh, John McTiernan, one of my favorite directors, just yeah. Die Hard, the, the Hunt for Red October, which we covered in the in the very first episode oh, of Subgenre Season Hard. 1. He did Predator. He's done a lot of movies that you say the names and you go, oh yeah, I remember that. Now, he's done some other things, which we, we well, won't get into too deeply. You know, they spin- all have, right? Well, this, this involves- have all done some other things. This involves prison time, but we, we, won't, go, <laughs> we won't go far down the John McTiernan hole. We're just going to say as a filmmaker only John McTiernan one of my favorites okay good writers on this we got writers that are writing movies like Overboard and Mrs. Doubtfire and Sphere and all that stuff from the time like when one of the one of the women I mean it was Leslie Dixon it was Leslie Dixon yeah I love that a a woman co-wrote this because you I think you really feel that in the pacing and in Rene Russo's character Tom Priestley shooting it John Wright of course who who works with John McTiernan I think edited Humphrey October and this whole thing from top to bottom above the line crew is just, it's insane to me. Beyond McTiernan, beyond Priestley shooting it, beyond, you know, Leslie Dixon and Kurt Wimmer. The music, it's freaking the Bill music. Conti. <laughs> Bill Conti, on my, on my scale of people who write music for movies, Bill Conti is almost the top. Man, and you know, it's one of those things where when I first saw the film, you know, as a teenager, and especially as somebody who's not super into film, music at at that point would have been near the bottom of my list of things to pay attention to. But I think even at that point, I knew on a subconscious level how it set the tone of the film. And when I was re-watching it the other week, from the opening credits, that very sort of almost quirky, yep. sort of tense opening theme, it was just like, this slaps. <laughs> this is amazing. It's so good. And you sit there and go, okay, yeah. This what am is I like, getting into right now? What am I getting into, right? Like yeah. I'm here, the dude that wrote the theme from Rocky and Karate Kid mm-hmm. and all those things is writing the music for this thing. 
let's even talk about, this is a movie about art. It's about art theft. Mm-hmm. It's it's about style and fashion and mm-hmm. all those things. And you've got, was it Bruno Rubio doing the production design, who's like platoon and driving Miss Daisy. And you've got the art direction being done by Dennis Bradford, who's got some Star Trek cred. He did the, uh, okay. the, the 09 movie. You know, oh, wow. And and Westworld, you know, the series Westworld, Deep Impact. Deep Impact, say no more. There you go, right. <laughs> Lots of good people doing lots of cool stuff and putting it all together in this, you know, whatever it was, a two-hour movie. So now it's time for our feature presentation. In our feature presentation for this, the first episode of season two subgenre, of course, we are talking about the 1999 remake of the Thomas Crown Affair. Normally for movies, I, I you know sit and wait for the opening credits to be over and then we start the movie. But in this one, the movie started for me with that title sequence. Man, it just hits you in the face with style and confidence and panache, you know, the, the opening credits. For folks who haven't seen the movie or who maybe haven't seen it in a while, as the opening credits are rolling and you see a given cast member's name roll across the screen, they sw- if there are any shared letters in the in the name, first and last name, they swap them, yeah. which is just like a little spoiler. Just a little foreshadowing. What's going to happen. Right. Yep. And if you've never seen the movie before, it means nothing to you. If you've seen the movie before, it may be one of those things you look at and you go, Oh, that's clever. You appreciate it in hindsight. After this lovely title sequence, we start this movie about art heists and playboys and things. We started in a therapist's office. And there's this voice that comes out of the darkness and says, I want you to talk about women, Mr. Crown. (laughs) And this is how we start our movie. With our main character, Pierce Brosnan, Thomas Crown. Close up, tight close up. Close up. up. Do you want to look at Pierce Brosnan any other way? You You want to be as close to this guy as possible. He's just thinking. I remember, it's just like a very classy looking, he should be like wreathed in cigars smoke sort of thing, but he's in a therapist's office and not just any therapist. It's Faye Dunaway. It's Faye Dunaway, which- Looking like a whole meal. (laughs) This is another layer to this movie. If you have never seen the original, then, oh great, it's Faye Dunaway. That's kind of cool. If you have seen the original, Faye Dunaway was in the original Mm -hmm. Thomas Crown Affair. She was one of the co-leads in in the original. And yeah, we got Faye Dunaway interviewing Thomas Crown in a session that's lit almost like an interrogation. He says almost nothing in this scene. And of course, she's his therapist. She's supposed to be evaluating him objectively, but she's sort of purring at him and inviting him to share as much of himself as he's willing to share. And he gives her nothing. He gives her nothing. (laughs) What she wants to talk to him about really is trust. And she kind of takes it in two directions. And she, she says, can a woman trust you? He says, yes, a woman could trust me as long as her interests don't run contrary to my own. Right. And she takes it the other way and says, well, what about society? Could society trust you if its interest ran counter to your own? From Crown, we get the first of what will be many knowing smiles. Knowing smiles that reveal nothing. It's almost jarring. We jump immediately from this very intimate session with the therapist to this space view of New York, and then we zoom into Manhattan, and then we zoom into a particular street, and then we zoom down through the car roof of this one car stuck in traffic and land on the sleeve of Thomas Crown. Pulls up the sleeve. There's a watch. He checks the time. It's pretty slick. Tells his driver. Of course, he's got a driver. He's a rich playboy. Tells his driver, uh, I'm going to walk from here. I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk. Jimmy says, hey, you want me to keep your briefcase? No, no, no. I'll, I'll keep my briefcase. I'm, I'm going to walk. Steps out of the car and almost is immediately hit by a delivery truck, uh, a big mm-hmm. panel truck going beside him. Just a random delivery truck. Just a random delivery just a, truck. Just some guy in a truck. It certainly won't go, <laughs> come into play again. Planting and payoff in this is everywhere. 
It's huge. everywhere. And, and it's Pay attention to the details. Really smartly. Yeah, absolutely. So he steps out of this car, is almost hit by this truck, and the place where he is almost hit by this truck is right in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Crown gets this strange look on his face, almost a look of recognition that the driver does not return. And Crown, without saying another word, takes his briefcase and walks himself up to the Met. And he's in through the museum, and we find out pretty quickly He's a regular. He knows where he's going. He goes to the museum. He's, he goes past tourists and people who are rubbernecking different things and makes his way in a beeline to the Impressionist Gallery. Looks at all of these beautiful works of art that are on the walls all around him. It's kind of this cozy little gallery. Takes a seat on a bench, which is right there in, in front of one of the paintings, and proceeds to eat a croissant. Which, no, I think he eats, he's eating a sandwich. Is that a sandwich? I think he's eating a sandwich. Whatever he's eating, that to me is one of the greatest flexes in the film because they're not going to let you eat at the Met in the Impressionist (laughs) Gallery. But this guy basically owns the Impressionist Gallery. And the security guard comes over and watches him eat a sandwich and greets him a good afternoon. This is a guy named Bobby. He's played by an actor named Michael Lombard. Bobby knows Crown. Crown knows Bobby. It's obvious that Crown is there probably nearly every day. And Bobby is just kind of confused with Crown because he tells him, you come here like every day and you've got all these beautiful works of art around you, especially this incredible Monet, you know, right in front of you. But you don't go to the Monet like everybody else. You sit in front of this other painting over here. He says, I don't really care about the Monet. I kind of just, I like my haystacks, Bobby. And Bobby still can't quite understand this. And he says, well, the Monet, like, do you, do you even know what that's worth? And we get this second knowing smile. So we got the first one from Can Society Trust You? And we got the second one from Do You Know What That's Worth? He does know what it's worth, but he pretends not to care. He's above such concern. That's right. He's already He's rich. He's quite wealthy. He's eating in the museum. That's right. Right about that time. Remember that panel truck that almost ran Crown over out in the street? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. it is pulling through this gate into the back of the museum, back to the loading docks, backs up to the door, knock, knock, knock. Hey, we got a delivery. What do you got? In the crate, it says it's a, a horse of some sort, an Etruscan horse. I got a horse. I got a horse. I got an Etruscan horse. <laughs> he said, well, no, no, we were expecting a sarcophagus. Well, sorry, I have a horse. What do you want me to do? Take it back and throw it away? Yeah, and they're like, put <sighs> it in the back with the ark. Just put it with the ark. They wheel this giant ass uh, wooden crate in and back into the museum it goes. Right about that time then, you know, Crown's done with his sitting and looking at his haystacks. He's back at his business, which we find out is called Crown Acquisitions. Ha 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 ha. He He is someone who basically buys companies out from under people and takes over the stock. He's walking through this office that is just lined with paintings on, you know, wherever the eye looks, there are these these huge pieces of art. But uh, what doesn't he have? He doesn't have his briefcase, which which Oopsie. we is, which is pointed out by his secretary. Hey, Mr. Uh, hey, hey, Mr. Crown, did no you briefcase forget today? your briefcase? Right. And he's like, oh, I must have left it in my my office overnight. We mm-hmm. start with just these little hints that are dropped. So back at the museum, you've got this senior museum guard, you know, dour faced guy played by George Christie, who is looking at one manifest and then looking at the other. It's supposed to be a sarcophagus. It says it's an Etruscan horse. It's supposed to be a sarcophagus. It says it's an Etruscan horse. And he says that that obviously we have a disparity here. Let's crack it open. Let's crack it open, boys. Crack it open. They pry this sucker open and inside is... It's a horse. It's a horse. It's a It's a a thick horse. (laughs) Thick horse, which, you know... uh, The large lad. The museum guard is like, that is not a sarcophagus. Yeah, no, it isn't. It isn't. No. But it's Friday. He doesn't want to deal with it. He wants to go home. Everybody wants to go home. Basically, like, I'm going to yell at somebody on Monday, but not today. And he leaves. And they leave the horse in the museum. 
Back in Crown's office. You were jumping back and forth here. Back in Crown's office. Crown is doing what Crown does. He's standing and kind of, you know, peering out the window pensively while somebody else is looking to buy something from him. Everyone's having a great day. They're having a great... It's the first the, It's the first time Thomas Crown has had to sell something. That's what they say. had to sell something. That's they're, right. They're celebrating. They're the, guy, the people that made Thomas Crown sell something for the first time. And at the very end, we find out... They paid $30 million more than anybody more else was offering. How guys. are they going to explain that to their shareholders? And so he's having a great day. Back in the museum, all of a sudden, this horse that's been sitting there opened. All of a sudden, little bits of dust just start to fall out from the bottom of the that's horse. Not, that's not supposed to happen. That's not supposed to happen. And we Maybe realize pretty soon that somebody is trying to saw their way out of it from the inside. We have, we have a literal Trojan horse that starts yes. out this movie. And as they step out of the horse, take these oxygen masks out of their mouth, they start to speak another language. And the leader of them says, we're talking English from here on out. So we get this right. immediate sense that they are not from here, but that they're here to do bad things. Usually, if you're going to drill your way out of a horse in a museum basement, you're not there for benevolent reasons. No, d- drilling a horse in any way is, is, is <laughs> never... <laughs> It's never a good thing. <laughs> Unless Out, you get the horse's in, consent. No, with it, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I remember that watch we came down from space and we checked through the car before. Well, Crown's checking it. Crown's at his office. It's 11.30 a.m. He's he's checking his watch and apparently needs to know what time it is. Well, presumably at the same time at 11.30, we're back in the Met. These guys that have fallen out of the horse uh, have now broken <laughs> like out. Like you do. It's <laughs> Like you do. Have <laughs> broken out the blowtorches. They're, they're cutting holes in walls. They're climbing into the into the boiler room of the Met. So we sort of get this entrapment moment with these guys where they're they're jumping and avoiding red lasers and there's security cameras and stuff. There's a security camera that's rotating in one corner. And yep. what they're trying to do is as the camera pans away, they bolt this rig to a ceiling almost like they're getting ready to climb a tree. And one guy hauls himself up the rig just in time to crawl out of the line of sight of camera of the camera as it pans back. Meanwhile, back in the Impressionist <laughs> Gallery, we get a nice little answer to Bobby's question before of, do you know how much this costs, by way of a school tour that's made their way uh, in into the this section of the Met. The person that's leading the tour sees that she's kind of losing the kids. They're bored. It's I think art. She's, Who cares? she's meant to be their teacher. She's reading from like a little leaflet that she's got. This is 1999. The kids are 13 years old. They're thinking about anything else. She's losing them. She puts down, she looks at her little leaflet and she puts it down and she says, okay, try this. It's worth a hundred million bucks. And the kids are like, what? I love art now. (laughs) That'll get your attention. Three digits and a million behind it. Sure. Yeah. And one of these, I'm assuming it's one of these kids, a few seconds later is walking towards a painting as you, as we know, when you think of being in a museum with sticky kids, fingered little sticky fingers, parasites. is heading to touch a painting. <laughs> and at the last second, our, our nice guard, Bobby stops her and says, no, 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 no. Is she, it Bobby? It's Bobby. It's yeah. Bobby. Okay. Yeah. He, he stops her and, and says. What is his name, Bobby? Time. His name is Bobby. Your notes say Jimmy. Yeah, it's it's actually is he Bobby or Jimmy. Jimmy, okay. Bobby, Jim, Jim, Bob. <laughs> Jim Bob. It's Jim Bob. Jim Bob. Okay. <laughs> Jim Bob stops the girl. <laughs> As she is leaving and starting to walk out, 
at the exact same time, the thieves are doing what the thieves do. But we don't see right away what they're doing. What we do see is that one of them uh, electrocutes himself and <laughs> nearly falls from, you know, on high down to the ground so that the guards can see yeah. them. Um, not so slick. Not so slick. But what he, what he does accomplish by electrocuting himself and cutting the wire is turning off all of the air conditioning units for the museum. This clicks on a warning light for the guards back in the surveillance room and off they go down to the sub-basement to try to figure out what's going on with the air conditioning. I feel like I have a memory of a brief interaction where as things start to heat up upstairs, I think it's two of the guards are talking about how it's one of the hottest days of the year, but it's October. And hindsight, I was just like, oh man, you guys have no idea. It's about to get so much worse. <laughs> Wait 20 years, man. Just man. Yeah. Well, how much snow did you guys get that year? Because I'll tell you how much snow they're getting in 2022. It's not as much. Um, Crown at this time, while our thieves are electrocuting themselves and turning off the air conditioning, <laughs> Crown is leaving his office. He heads back out of his office. This time, his secretary notes, oh, Mr. Crown, you found your briefcase. Came in with no briefcase. He leaves with another. And the temperature is continuing to rise at the Met because there is no air conditioning. It's a bad time. It's a bad time. One thing that I failed to mention, I'm going to back up just slightly. Okay. Is remember that little girl that was going to touch the painting? And, oh, yeah. And, our, and Jim Bob, uh, Bobby Jimmy. Yes. Right. <laughs> tells her not to touch the painting. Mm-hmm. As she is turning and leaving, and this is right at the same time that those guards are up there clipping on wires, she apparently is the only one who hears... What sounds cocoon? Right, cocoon. Like these locks that are unlocking behind each painting. So you kind of get this little panning shot where we look at each painting and we hear this kachunk, kachunk, kachunk. So that they have turned off or deactivated some sort of Something. locking device. Yeah, we don't yet know what. We don't know what. But we're nothing gonna... apparently happens. Nothing apparently gunk, happens. Gunk, 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 nothing changes. Exactly. But that plan is pushed even further forward because now that we've got these guards that have shimmied through the duct, now they are, you know, dressed as these guards and they're making their way into the impressionist gallery. There's these three kind of definitely scowling, scowling, bald, uh, like, Eastern European looking Eastern, dudes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And make make not, their way into the gallery. They're not blending in the way they think they're blending in. 100% not. Uh, <laughs> especially when you put them up against the person they run into in the gallery, which is sort of this kind of junior proctor guy. He's, he's, I think, Jeff, he says his name is later. But he's standing there guarding the room or whatever. And they walk in and, and tell him, you know, in their best dower. This exhibit is closed. This exhibit is closed. Exhibit is closed. <laughs> No, and administration guys, would like to talk to you administration upstairs. Administration would like to talk to you. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, you can call them if you like. And so the guy calls and there's another guy still hanging out in the ceiling on the basement underneath who's like, administration. <laughs> <laughs> and they have some conversation. Then Jeff's like, well, I guess I'll just head on up there. That And Jeff heads on out and the goons get to work. Tapping phone lines like that is a little bit of a trope for this type of yeah. movie. We're going to see this actually. Actually, there's, a, there's one in particular that I'm thinking of that we're going to see in another movie being covered this season in subgenre. But yeah, you know, you call them if you want to and you go pick up the phone and talk to one of the other thieves who's on another phone and that tends to... Everything uh, is normal. Everything is fine. <laughs> he is all normal. Hello, it's Colin. <laughs> Your friend. Hello, come to administration. So this puts Jeff, our, our junior project, by, by Jeff. This puts Jeff at ease. Jeff says, oh, I better go talk to them upstairs. So he heads out. Immediately upon Jeff leaving, our three thieves in uniforms begin to quickly shuttle people out of the gallery. Heard. This, heard. Heard. Corral. Heard. 
people out of the gallery. Exhibit and is all closed. Of the, is, exhibit is closed. The whiteies don't question it at all. They're out of there. Fine. <laughs> it's it's hot. I'm being told to leave. Fine. The Met, the Met is huge. I'll go somewhere else. But over this gallery in, in the Met is this gigantic skylight, like just huge, leads yeah. up to the roof. So obviously this is close to the top floor. On the roof is another thief looking down through the skylight. He's got ropes in hand. We can tell he's ready to haul some people or some stuff out of there. And so there's this whole thing theft obviously being put into motion very a close. A helicopter shows up. Oh, oh, there's a helicopter coming. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like it's, it's more of like almost a Mission Impossible sort of thing mm-hmm. is about to happen. Mm-hmm. And just happens that right at that time where all of this is, is going on, who shows up at the Impressionist Gallery? Thomas Crown. Thomas Crown. Thomas Crown. He's, he's he just here wants to, maybe he just wants to look at his haystacks one more time. Maybe he's got another sandwich. Before the gallery shuts down for the day. That's and he right. shows up and is turned away by a guy who tells him he's closed for cleaning. He's closed. And he doesn't put up, he says, oh, okay. And he, he doesn't, doesn't really argue about it. He uh, he sets his briefcase down. He's very absent-minded, this guy. He's always leaving his briefcase mm-hmm. places. Sets it down by the uh, door, by the door to the gallery. And uh, turns around and walks away without an argument. Guards go on, do what they're going to do. But Crown's a regular. Crown knows what's supposed to happen and what's not supposed to happen. This is not supposed to happen. This is not supposed to happen. And so he takes his musings, his wonderings over to his good friend, Bobby. I was evicted. Those guys. I was evicted. I was evicted. And uh, Bobby is like, that's not supposed to happen. I would know if that's supposed to happen. Yeah, cleaning. So Bobby goes to see what's what. Bobby takes a couple of buddies with him too and walks in and kind of confronts the first thief who's standing there and says, "What what's going on here? And gets a one word answer from the man who obviously has no idea what he just said or how to respond. And we just get, yes. Yes. <laughs> so then one of the other goons comes up, the lead goon. I'm going to call him Milos. Milos, sure. Milos uh, comes up and uh, says, basically, what's going on here? What do you want? And Bobby says, who are you and what are you doing here? Call upstairs if you like. We're, we're supposed to be here. We're here for cleaning. Yeah. And Bobby's not that at all. No, Bobby's smart enough and he's been a guard long enough that he plays it off when the guy says, oh no, we're supposed to be here. You should call upstairs. And Bobby's like, you know what? Okay. No, it's it's cool. I, there's been VIPs here all week. I get it. It's fine. As he's turning out of the corner of his eye, notices that there's these heli- the shadow of these helicopter blades that are flashing on the floor of the gallery. Takes a little peek up. Oh yeah, the helicopter and a dude with ropes up there. Takes his baton and snaps it out. Snaps this baton it's a, out. It's a nightstick. Right. <laughs> like and a telescoping thing. Boom. And turns around and with however many volts come out of whatever this cattle prod is that he's carrying with him, just jabs it at the first thief and the chase is on. As the guy goes flying down the hallway, Thomas Crown, who has taken a seat on a bench along the hallway. Very casual seat. Sees a guy flying down the hallway and ever so slightly sticks out a leather shoe and the man goes flying. Hits the ground, gives Bobby and his buds time to get on top of this guy and just beat the snot out of him. And right as that's happening, by the way, Bobby has the presence of mind to reach out and smash the emergency alarm on the wall. The security gates for the galleries start to drop. These big old imposing doors like, you know, Indiana Jones, the door is the big doors are closing. With everyone distracted then, Crown, who's been just kind of chilling on this bench watching everything that's going on. Suddenly turns into a completely different man. Completely different. Completely (laughs) different. It's still smooth as hell, but Mm -hmm. stands up from where he's doing. In one fluid movement. Rolls himself, just like in his full-on Brooks Brothers whatever suit, like lays on the ground, rolls under (laughs) this closing gate, a la Indiana Jones, and moves like through the gallery. Like Like a cat burglar. Like a cat burglar. 
when Crown was talking to the, is closed for cleaning, when he was talking to those guys, he left the briefcase he had in his hand sitting in the doorway, right? right. That, that's the one we're talking about now. Door has hit where the briefcase was. Can't close all the way. Yeah. Then he grabs his briefcase from earlier, which we see that he has left under the bench that he was sitting on enjoying his snack. Yes. He hurls open the briefcase violently grabs the Monet off of the wall, yes. the expensive one. Yes. Puts it in the briefcase. Yes. Pulls it from pulls the frame it, first. Hurls it out of the frame. Yeah. The frame. Frame goes flying. Right. So, so he, he grabs takes the painting, it. Yes. puts it in his briefcase, rolls right the fuck back out, walks away, calm as cucumber. Walk, walks Nobody away. challenges him. Nobody challenges the fact that dude has in a suit has straight up rolled out of the gallery that was no closed. No one has seen with, it happen. No. He's following the flow of traffic of people being told to get out of the museum because there's alarms going off and everything and steps into that flow and out he goes and just happens on the way out the door to pass a sign for an upcoming exhibition that features a, a Magritte painting called The Son of Man. Are you familiar with The Son of Man, Charlotte? It's that Oh, paint- wait, yes, I do. Yes, I yeah, am. Oh, it's yeah, the, of it's course the apple face guy, right? If you've ever it's, seen the painting of the, the guy in the bowler hat. hat and he's got an apple for a face and he's wearing right. a suit, it's sort of like mystery man behind an apple. That's Son of Man. And so he walks past this, uh, you know, sign for a Magritte exhibition that has this on it, which will come into play very soon. And the thieves are apprehended. Oh. All is officially well there in terms of how they are inside the museum. Crown exits and hails a taxi. The heist has gone down. He has walked out of the museum unchallenged with this painting in his briefcase. And he he returns home. We see where he lives. He lives in this lovely brownstone in New York. Uh, he's got this butler named Paul, um, who is there to greet him course, at the door. What because of course, what an elegant name for why, a butler. Why wouldn't you have a butler named Paul? I would, if I could. Mm-hmm. Paul takes the case, doesn't question the briefcase, just takes the briefcase and says, I'll put this in your study. Well, of course you will, Paul. That's where else would you put it? You got to put it in where study. Would, yep. Paul doesn't ask any questions. Paul asks no questions. Paul, Paul is, is the there. perfect butler. Love Paul. Um, yep. Paul, by the way, played by the actor James Saito, goes and puts it in the study. And a little while later, Crown shows up in his study, glass of wine in hand, and on the wall in his study, as he stands there at his desk and or sits or whatever it is he's doing, right across from him directly in his eyesight is a copy of the Magritte. Could be the original, yep. but there, but yep. there is yep. the Magritte, the guy with the apple face. The, the guy with the apple face. Who is this guy? Who's behind that apple? We can't tell. It's sort of a mystery. There's mystery layers. Man. So he takes his case. He lays it on the desk, opens up the case, and inside is... The San Giorgio Maggiore at dusk. Say it again. San Giorgio Maggiore. There it is. That's the one. (laughs) At dusk. That's the one. The Monet. The Monet. It's in his briefcase. He's made it home. He's very happy with this. Um, He pushes, of course, as you do when you're a rich playboy superhero or non-superhero, you reach under your desk and you push a button. And of course, secret secret things happen. Oh. Pushes the button. The wall with the green on it. It opens. The wall slides up. The wall slides up. Behind it, what is there? A perfectly shaped rectangular space waiting for something. Well, what could it be waiting for? The Monet. He takes the Monet, he sets it in place, grabs his glass of wine, gives it a toast, and admires his work. Elegant. Elegant. Stylish. Flawless. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Sticks the landing, gets the painting home, puts it in in exactly the right place, and of course, puts it right behind the uh, the Son of Man painting, which will play such a big part in the rest of this film. That, friends, is just the start the beginning. <laughs> of this movie, The Thomas How Crown How are you going to edit this, Josh? I have no idea. This is going to be a four-hour-long podcast. <laughs> this is a miniseries, if anything. <laughs> How about we take a step back for just a second, we'll take a break from talking plot, give everybody a chance to catch their breath, and for just a few minutes, let's, uh, let's take a deep dive. 
The deep dive is a section in subgenre where we like to go down a rabbit hole, if you will, because this is the first episode of season two, and because season two is all about gentleman thieves, I think maybe we should talk about the trope of the gentleman thief. Oh, I love it. So the gentleman thief, right, which we're calling charming thieves, um, but Mm -hmm. but the gentleman thief is a very well-worn literary filmic storytelling Device. trope. It's, 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 you're right. It's a stock character. You know, it goes by a few different names, right? Like I said, we call, we're calling it Charming Thieves, Gentleman Thief, Gentleman Burglar, Lady Thief, Phantom Thief. All of these are sort of synonyms for what this character is, but they all basically mean the same thing, which is someone who steals things, but does it in a really slick, cool way and maybe doesn't need to steal them. Steals for fun, steals for pleasure. It is, it would usually be something like jewelry or art. It's not just like grabbing, they're not breaking into banks. It's not smash and grab. It's not a smash and grab. It's planned out. Even the act itself is stylish. I may, may, may take issue with the last thing you said, which is that it's not banks because I am pretty sure in the original Thomas Crown Affair, that's what it was. It was banks, not art. Okay. We'll check that. We, we will, I'm we will check it right that. now. We'll check it right now. They but, are. They do. You're right. They rob a bank. Okay. So there you go. It can be banks. It can be money. But even if it is banks and money, it's not smash and grab. And it's not done violently. And it's not done uncouthly. On the contrary. Gentlemen thieves, lady thieves, phantom thieves. This trope really lives and dies on the fact that these people have manners. Mm. And they have intelligence. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to do something, they're going to do it in the most overly complicated way possible because they can. It's the game, the fun. It's very genteel. It's like creating a puzzle that they can solve themselves or yeah. something. It's yeah. they're very and often they are already very wealthy. They're just bored. It's very much a, a matter of like, what can I get away with? Because I've done everything else. I've traveled the world. I've amassed all the wealth. I'm fabulous. I have it all. What else is there left to do? And sometimes- Crime. A crime, right. And and, <laughs> and sometimes, and this will be true again in other, other movies that we're covering this season, oftentimes I think the thing that they're stealing, the- institution or people or person that they're stealing it from can stand to lose it. It's um, it's victimless, it's a victimless crime. crime. They're stealing money from rich people who are never going to notice that amount of money being gone. They're stealing art from an institution that, well, yeah, you shouldn't steal stuff. But look, they look at all these other wonderful We're not taking, they can right. enjoy. They're not taking bread Come out on. of the mouth of anybody. Get, they can buy a print in the gift shop. And sometimes the thievery is sometimes used for good. It is, I'm thieving against somebody, yes, but I'm doing it for a good reason to correct some sort of moral wrong to fix something that needed to be fixed that only me, the rich playboy, play, playgirl, <laughs> you know, whatever, maybe cat burglar, whatever that is, only I can fix that. And so I'm going to do that. But of course, there is something very myopic and hypocritical about that. It's a very classically wealthy sensibility, which is one law for thee, one law for me. There is this kind of ends justify the means thing that go along with this type of film. And it, it's you, often part of the game. Like, it's part of the game. I, okay, I, I stole it to see if I could steal it. And there's almost a part of it that's like, now that I've stolen it, it's not fun anymore. And the reason why we let them, as an audience, let them get away with it, want them to get away with it, are so drawn to these movies, comes back to that these are not normal people. These are people who are charming no matter how much bad, you know, in a general sense that they do. They have the corner on just really making us love them because they're so roguish. 
I think. We are also pulled in by their charisma. And it's very easy for us to sympathize with their motivations, even if we know that their motivations aren't good. And I mean, I think Catwoman is another great example. And Catwoman is different from Thomas Crown in that like, she is very much an agent of chaos, uh-huh. often resorts to physical violence to achieve what she wants. And, and much of what she's doing is driven by vendetta. In a way, her intentions are are often still good, that the guys that she's punching are still bad guys. Right. And if Batman gets punched a few times, well, fuck Batman. He's a rich guy too. <laughs> it's the 1% stealing from the 1%. That, Absolutely. That almost, you love to see rich on rich crime. Rich on rich crime is, is, the, heart, is the heart of charming yes. thief movies. That's what this is, right? That, there you go. And so that's kind of the biggest definer for me of what this trope is. But I think there is almost an equally vital piece of something that defines this for me, and that is kind of the overall aesthetic. There's a fashion to being a charming thief, right? Mm -hmm. You can't be schlubby. You can't be plain and normal. You have to be a gentleman. A gentleman. You have to be style, grooming, manners, sex appeal, effortlessly so. Yes. Right? There's an art here. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's part of what pulls you in and, and makes you, you sympathize with it because you want to be that. I mean, we can all, I think, sympathize with wanting to get away with something, but we also always want to look cool. Oh, yeah. And if you can look cool while getting away with something, <laughs> like that's, that's it. <laughs> that's the thing. That's what you want. So there's this element of, romance and fantasy about this impossible human feat that makes us feel more easily persuaded by the gentleman thief. And I think that's where this movie excels. This movie locks on to that particular thing about gentleman thieves, the whole fashion aspect, the whole slick as as ice kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and plays it for all that it's worth in every part of this movie. You know, they're always wearing the right thing. Their hair is always perfect. What they do when they're not stealing is just effortlessly, you know, cultured, cultured and phenomenal. And they just seem unfazed by all untouchable. And so I think I think you can take that same thing that this film does really well, which is also the, you know, the the one big half I think of what makes a charming thief film. And you can you can take that out into the real world, and and I think that's why we get so enamored, maybe, with characters like, let's say, DB Cooper, because you know DB Cooper, the mm-hmm. guy who uh, was it in the seventies, like early seventies, you know, hijacks yep. a plane and gets yep. away with money and parachutes out and is never seen from again, never seen again. You know, that's cool that he did that, but he did it in a dark suit and tie and sunglasses and, and something and and holding a scotch. It's even it's even odds. That he just went split. Oh, yeah. But what if he didn't? But what if he didn't? That sort Style. of thing plays out, not just in fiction, but I think you could, it comes over into the real world. And so I think anytime we see anybody that sort of fits that gentleman, thief, whatever it is, you just can't help but kind of root for him, I guess. I don't know what that says yeah. about us as a people, but the, I, I... We're not I, great. We're not great. <laughs> 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 that all of our morals can be undermined by a man in a suit. That sounds like a good time to take a break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast, and right now you're listening to my voice. 
But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? Visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here. This is Subgenre. You are back listening to our episode on the Thomas Crown Affair from 1999. I'm your host, Josh Dassel, and I am here with my guest host, Charlotte Moore. (laughs) What's your last name now? It's on my display right there. Charlotte Moore Lambert. It's Lambert. Charlotte Moore Lambert. You were at my wedding. Honestly, you had a mouthful of spaghetti and I really just wanted you to try to talk with it in your mouth. Okay, first of all, it's not spaghetti. It's burrito filling (laughs) that my husband just made. Thank you, Aaron. Disrespectful. (laughs) Oh, you remembered his name. That's good. Jesus Christ. You're you're uninvited from my wedding. Great. Well, we're back talking about this cool-ass movie. We're finally about to get to the good shit. After everything we've talked about After to this point. After 12 hours everybody, minutia. That wasn't the good stuff. The good stuff starts now. And, and the reason the good stuff starts now is because we're starting to introduce the people who are really going to make this movie hum. And sex it, has entered the chat. Sex has entered the chat and <laughs> something not quite sex has entered the chat and actually enters first. And that is in the person of police detective Mikey McCann as played by... Dennis fucking Leary, who in 1999, he was on his way to peaking. Oh, his yeah. career was on the upswing. He had done uh, No Cure for Cancer, was huge with his big album. Yep. Uh, and I don't know yet if his second one had come up. What's the second one? Lock and Load. Lock and Load. Okay, so No Cure for Cancer. No Cure for Cancer was 1993. Lock and Load was 1997. Yep. At the time, he was very like, kind of counterculture-y, semi-conservative, yelling mm-hmm. about the kids mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. basically. He was basically a much cooler version of like Dice Clay to some degree. Like, yeah. he, And he's 100% Dennis Leary in this movie. He's not trying to yeah. play anybody else. No, he's, he's Dennis Leary. Himself. He's Dennis Larry as a cop walks into the museum. Obviously, he's the lead detective on this thing, comes in to see what's happening, is met by his partner, buddy, uh, Detective Peretti, played by an actor who I love named Frankie Faison. Faison, Faison, I don't know how you pronounce the last name. Probably Faison. Frankie Faison is this dude who has been in a bunch of stuff that I love, but the one thing that I remember him most for is he played Barney, sort of the gatekeeper of the cellar or the basement where they keep Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, He's the kind guard who says to Clarice, you know, here's the rules and here's what you're going to do and don't worry, you'll be fine. That's Frankie Faison, who was also in the original Hannibal Lecter uh, movie Manhunter, played a detective in that one. So, good dude. He's in this movie. I was very happy to see that. Greets uh, Mikey at the door, 
says, uh, hey, Mikey, I'm here on the scene. We're running everything down. You know, that chopper that was taking everything away. We found that in Queens. Over here, here's the museum director, you know, and we're going to- They think they've got the guys. And they got the guys. We got the guys. We think they're Eastern European. Maybe they're Russian. This thing is pretty sealed. Like we're we're running a track. They're walking through the museum. They're they're having their chat about how well this is going and how they're going to solve this whole thing in Mm -hmm. in an afternoon. And what they don't notice is this redheaded- How do they not notice her? I don't know how they don't notice her. I noticed I don't, her. Gravity bends around this woman. <laughs> yeah. How do they not notice this woman? Yeah. But they don't because they they're don't. men. They're heading their way. She's following them. She's listening. They don't know she's listening, but off they go. They're in the Impressionist Gallery. Mikey's walking through the thieves' plan. Okay, so I think they're going to do this, and it's obvious they're going to do this. To me, it looks like amateur hour. There are still a couple of things that like don't quite seem to make sense, right. and they kind of come up against a wall. Mikey bends down, and right under the the door is the briefcase that we know that Crown has left there before. But it's a briefcase that has managed to stop a giant steel door from closing, which they open the briefcase and we find out inside it's It's a a titanium cage. Right. Specifically manufactured, it looks like, for the purpose of stopping that particular door. And who's who's there to see them see that and and make that realization? Renee Russo. She enters leg first. Whether you see her face or not first, she's entering leg first. It's like it's leg first. They okay, who are you now? And who's this broad? <laughs> turns out her name is Catherine Banning, that she is there on behalf of the Swiss underwriters of this worse p- than the FBI. Worse than the FBI. <laughs> The Swiss underwriters who are not going to pay a dime until she's done her work and figured out exactly what has happened here, who is responsible, where the painting is or is not. And obviously they put a lot of stock in what it is that she says and what it is that she does. She starts to run through her observations. Because these guys, look, in one way, it's not their fault. These guys are just cops. They go where they're sent. They're not specialists in art thievery, but she is. And she's thinking this through on a different level. So one of the things she's like, here's the weight rating of that chopper. There's no way that that chopper was going to fit all of those guys. So what was it doing here? What was the plan for that even to be here? And they made all of this effort. Why did they turn up the heat, but then make everyone leave if they're just going to sneak it through the door? What was the point of all of that effort? Gentlemen. It's not adding up. And by her saying that, what that means to Mikey is a few things, but mostly he can't just be done. He wanted to be done. Mikey wants to go home and he can't go home because of this broad. And he can't go anywhere without her because she makes it clear to him that I am here to do my job. You are here to do your job. But first and foremost, I'm here to do my job. That's right. By the way, she knew the weight rating on that particular chopper off the top of her head, which I found fascinating. Peretti is impressed with her. Oh, yeah. Peretti can already see that she's taken Mikey down a peg. And the more information she gives out, the more his smirk kind of grows as he's watching. Oh, he's loving it. If she's ruining this guy's day. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here for, I'm canceling (laughs) all my other plans. I'm standing here to watch this happen. Yeah. She's in, in the mix. Uh, Mikey's in the mix. And Crown, meanwhile, is he's off on the golf course. He's making big bets for no good reason. He's being the bored playboy that he is and sort of demonstrating that whole thing. Peretti manages to get a bit of background on Catherine so he can fill in Mikey. She's tough. Her daddy was a bounty hunter and taught her everything he knew. She comes from bonds. She comes from bounties. She comes from taking down dudes who have broken the law and bringing them back where they're supposed to be. That's who this woman is. Like Thomas Crown, she's a very elegant person. Now, there's something a little grittier about her 
but she is a gorgeous woman in a man's business. She's got an edge, but all of the edges are flawless. And so her wardrobe is perfect. Her hair is perfect. Her makeup is perfect. Everything about her is perfect. Normally, she's got everything together. This morning, she doesn't have completely everything together yet because it seems like she hasn't had her coffee. (laughs) This is is iconic for me. Right. Basically, like the next morning or a couple mornings later, Catherine, I don't want to say swans into the NYPD because she doesn't. She sort of stumbles into the NYPD. The other guys are already there. And she sits, she flops down very inelegantly at a desk and pours out the grossest looking sludge with the worst boba in it just glunk 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 and McCann Mikey wants to know what she's drinking and she says you don't want to know and so this is all she needs give her a minute she'll have her thing and then she'll be fine so once she's taken her big swig of whatever this stuff is then she's in work mode and once we're in work mode we're looking at gallery videotapes well Turns out the gallery recently has put in thermal imaging cameras. So we're getting body heat off of people as well as location. That's kind of cool. That's high tech. But there's a problem. Before the robbery happens, we see people. During the robbery on the tapes, we see nothing. We see At least while you're looking at the infrared parts of the tape. In that particular gallery, we see nothing. We just Mm -hmm. see the screen has gone white and it occurs to her, aha, that's why the thieves cut the air conditioning. She's like, oh, that's good. They were, they were trying to raise the temperature so that cameras basically, like she says, couldn't tell the difference between people and walls. She's even noticing the temperature went up a lot of places because the air was out all over the museum. Oh, right, right. The, The temperature went out a lot of places, but every other camera around didn't white out the same way that this camera whited out. So the this temperature raise to get the camera to white out, that only happened in front of the San Giorgio Maggiore at dusk, right in front of the Monet. How did that happen? So as they're reviewing the footage, she sees that there's the bench that Crown had been sitting on. She doesn't know that Crown was sitting on it. She sees a bench. Sandwich bench. And then later on, she sees sandwich bench is different. How many legs do you see there, Mikey? I see uh, three. How many see now? I see two. Yeah, that's different. Mm. That's different. (laughs) And of course, she notices that the men don't notice that, but they all put it together. They think maybe the thing under the bench was the heater. Whoever the thief was, they stuck this under the bench. It's right in front of the painting. It heats up exactly that spot so they could steal exactly that thing. And there you go. There's your... But she doesn't like that. She doesn't... She's not satisfied with that. It's a theory, but it doesn't feel right. They're almost there, but not quite there. You know, and of course, they're they're dry. Mikey takes a shot at the woman with the legs. Uh, You know, doesn't get very far. Hey, you want to go get some lunch? Hey, you want to go get some dinner? No, I don't Mm -hmm. think I will. She says, instead, I want to go to your office. They're going to talk to the guys. They got some goons. Who they now think are Romanian. There's a lineup happening with these guys in it. Love a lineup. And the person behind the, you know, one-way glass picks somebody out of the lineup and says, yep, definitely that dude. And the person doing the finger pointing is Thomas Crown. Hmm. So he picks out his thief. His patsy. Tell, <laughs> uses the line, by the way, to the cops. I can't imagine someone believing they could get away with something like this. And Catherine gives him a look like she feels it. Something. Something's something. off. Whatever she feels about this guy, it's not just in her pants. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. So, yeah. so they cart the Romanian, Polish, Russians out into interrogation rooms. One in particular, which Catherine points out and says, give me the quiet one. Um, they're waiting on a translator. She says, ah, give me a try. Mikey's like, you know, Romanian. She's like, yeah, just, just hold on. You don't. It's a romance language. Come on. Uh-huh. You don't know Romanian. <laughs> so she goes to talk to the guy and starts off. It's all in Romanian. 
right? This conversation, there are no subtitles. Yeah, that drove me nuts. Did you find subtitles somewhere? No, did there's no subtitles. This? But actually, I didn't mind it because I think that her performance on this and the writing on it is so good that I got the gist. I did too, but right. I'm still dying to know yeah. what she said. And so I'm looking it up right, right. now. Let's do it this way. All of my, all of my listeners in Romania... <laughs> All of the listeners of Subgenre in Romania, call me. Get in touch with us at subgenrepodcast.com. Let us know what they said in this scene. Make sure that we're getting it correctly. Oh, okay. No, I've got it. Oh, you got it. Okay. I'm reading the translation. Somebody has translated this in a forum. So first in French, she asks him, do you love the United States? And then in German, she asks him, do you like to watch gangster films with Edward G. Robinson? Edward G. Robinson. His family comes from Romania. And then the quiet guy says, I want a lawyer. And then Catherine says, in German, but you're not an American citizen. Hmm? You don't get a trial. You only get. And then she says something that apparently like nobody is actually like translated. Nobody figures out quite what she says because she, I guess, like mutters it to him. She Uh murmurs something to him. She becomes unintelligible and then says, Romanians without ID make us nervous. They could be securitate. Your government takes secret police. What will they do with you? Hmm? (laughs) And that's when the guy has the weirdest erection ever. (laughs) And whatever he tells her, she pops out a a few moments later and says, oh, they speak English. Yeah, they speak English. And what they've told her now that they speak English is their job was basically a prepackaged robbery. Somebody showed up, said, hey, I need some robbers. Here's some timetables. Here's some electrical specs. Please go rob the place. And they don't know who hired them. All they know is that they got money to do it. So they went and did it. And so this is where Catherine is saying, yeah, maybe they were hired as a diversion. So someone else could walk out with this $100 million Monet. You know, Mikey is New York cop. He's like, yeah, but you know, if anybody steals that, it's not like he's going to walk out on the street and sell the painting. Like as soon as he goes out and tries to do anything, we're going to nail him. And Catherine knows better. She, she says a dude like this, this is not a dude who sells it. This is an elegant crime done by an elegant person. You can tell even just in the way that she has been ruminating on this the whole time that she respects that person and she identifies with that person. She's fascinated by this person. And the way that she says that she needs to know more about this, she needs to find this person. Honestly, maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like in all of this, if Catherine Banning were going to commit a crime, this is the crime she would commit, you know? Yeah, in this need to find out more, she says, I want to dig up every auction in the last five years for Monet's, because this is a Monet lover, and I want to see who's buying Monet's. So, They go check and surprise, surprise, surprise. Guess who it is? Thomas Crown. Mikey's like this guy. He's a finance geek. Catherine is not in agreement. Yeah, we get this kind of, is he? Is he the geek? Is he the geek? She's already decided in her head the answer. This is our guy. So what does she do? She wants to go learn more about who this guy is who's putting all of his money into Monet's. She has gone to find him where you would find the playboy and has found him where else? In a catamaran race. Let's paint a picture here catamarans, they're those boats that basically lean over on their side. Enormous boats, big sails. It's a boat built on struts. And they go fast. They're racing boats. They're racing boats. And the way you get them to race faster and the way you get them to corner is basically to tilt them on their side. They really just, if you're doing it right, you get up off the water, you're flying for a little while, and then you hit back on the water. And this is what- gravity. Is That's correct. Doing. I have so much money. I don't need your gravity. So this is what Thomas Crown does. Now, what she sees him do is not just sail the boat, not just race the boat, but push the boat to its very limits and beyond so much so that this $100,000 boat capsizes. 
and flips over because he was trying to get a few more inches ahead of the person he was racing. This is somebody reckless who destroys a $100,000 boat for fun because he likes the splash. Right. So she finds him in his next place. You might find a rich playboy. This is part of his gentlemanliness yes. in all of this. He has the cojones to show up where he stole the painting from to give them a different painting to hold the place of the Monet until the Monet is recovered. That's right. Oh, how magnanimous. Monet is gone. Monet is missing. Thieves have stolen the Monet. So what does Mr. Thomas Crown, who is a benefactor of the museum, do? He lends them his Pizarro. He just happens he to have a Pizarro. Pizarro. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He has a Pizarro. I have a Pizarro. I'm going to lend it to you until the Monet is recovered. And everyone claps. And thank you. Thank you, Mr. Crown. How wonderful. Catherine uh, makes a point to get near him, congratulates him on the donation. Crown says, and I love this line, just to understand understanding in the back of his head, his spidey sense is going off that this woman is is a little bit dangerous. You know, she congratulates him on the donation. He says, oh, it fit the space. We won't spoil anything for later. We'll spoil it later. But this is a planting and payoff moment. And so he's donated the Pizarro. It's going to go where the Monet was. And she pushes a little further and says, yeah, you know, maybe it was just the Pizarro. Maybe that's just something you were bored with. As they're having this conversation, they're over at a bar and they're about to order and she orders his favorite drink, for him. And he's a little taken aback by this, but understand immediately that she has this information because she has been reading about him, which is what clues him in. Like, yeah, you, so you've got the file, you know, you know who I am. And he very uh, nonchalantly asks her, do you always get your man? Well, yes, of course. Of course, I Mm -hmm. always get my man. Think you'll get me? He asks her. And she gives him the same sort of smile that he would give her. And she says, oh, I hope so. For him, this is very compelling because now the heist is over. He's bored again, but the heist isn't over. Now he's being pursued by somebody who has the capacity to catch him. A new game is afoot. A new game. So what do you do when you're Thomas Crown and your life is living on the edge and trying not to be bored when the person shows up who could bring down everything that you've been working for? You ask her to dinner. And what do you do if you're Catherine Banning and your job is to capture the person who has taken all of this art, who is smarter than you and and trying to outwit you? What do you do when when that person asks you to dinner? You go to dinner. You go to dinner. You're about to have a fabulous dinner (laughs) and get information. Ostensibly, he is recounting all of this to his therapist. And she notices that as he is waxing poetic, I assume, Mm. obliquely, about this woman, that there is a change in him. He's happy. That he's, he's happy. happy. That's the change. He's not cold. He's not reserved. He's not withholding. And she pokes him a little bit. She gets it. She asks him a worthy adversary. He's found someone who can keep up. Nobody else in the world has been able to keep up with Thomas Crown. And he's finally been able to find someone who can keep up and potentially exceed him. And that is exciting. And it doesn't hurt that she looks like Renee. It does Russo. not hurt. <laughs> she's gone to dinner with him. Mikey's or, or furious. She's, she's accepted Mikey's, the dinner anyway. Mikey yeah. has watched her do this. Right. He's, they've been surveilling her. She was like, he basically told me he did it. And this is go, the, this go is, get him. This is the moment where she makes it clear that her role is not Mikey's role. Mikey's right. a cop. Mikey's goal is to create a case that's prosecutable. Her right. goal is to get the painting back. Prosecutable case be damned. Like she's that that's not what she's here to do. And that's right. going to inform the way that she acts from this point forward. Correct. And but Mikey has to follow the rule of the law. Correct. 
And Catherine, she may have given this guy a reason to run. She may have botched their case in, in some other way. And so, she may and, be getting played. Right. That, that's the thing that Mikey points out is if he is who you say he is, this is a guy who plays people. And I know you think you're playing him, but are you sure he's not playing you? However, Mikey's got nothing else to go on. Right. This is it. This is all he's got. It's enough to get him a warrant. So he and a bunch of guys get over to the fancy brownstone. With all they, the confidence in the world, they hand the warrant to the butler. But the musical cue at this point is very much like, <laughs> like, here come the idiots. They're not going to get the man. They're ready to turn the place upside down. Yep. And Crown, elegantly, wearing a little apron, I think, yeah, oh yeah. steps out of his kitchen and says, basically, what is this all about? And they give him the warrant. Your lawyer will be able to explain it. And Crown's like, great, because he's here. <laughs> you remember, remember I was cooking in the kitchen? My sous chef is my lawyer. And the cops walk out in shame. He knew this was coming. So Absolutely. he made sure the lawyer was, was there cooking so the lawyer yeah. could walk out. He, Mikey gets back in the car. Catherine is there already. She let the men do it the men's way. So she says, don't worry. I got this. You, you guys just hang out. I will get into his house. What does she do? <laughs> she goes to lunch. She goes to gets into Crown's car. He he is going to take her to lunch. Instead, though, instead of lunch, makes a stop, takes her back to the museum. She sees the Son of Man painting, the apple face guy, and yep. says, "Hey, you know that that guy who uh, is kind of mysterious behind the looks a lot like you. like you. Did you pose for that? Did you? <laughs> did you?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, shut up." But you know what? If I was to pick a painting, that Monet, that Magritte, that other, that's not what I would pick. That's not what I'd steal. No. And he says, really? What would you steal? And there's this other painting over there, right? There's a woman in a boat and just, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure which of the paintings it is, but it's it's a simple, pretty painting. And she says, that one, that's the one I would steal. And he says, anything's obtainable. Anything's obtainable. Which, while this is happening. While she's whispering, while she's purring to him, why, you'd get it for me? She grabs the keys out of his pocket and passes them off to a guy. Passes off the lifted keys to ostensibly another detective who takes them and runs away with them to make copies really quickly. I I think it's better if we don't know who that guy is or what he does. This guy was ready to take some stolen keys and make more keys from that (laughs) keys. I don't think that guy's with the law. That's true. So then this leads into kind of these uh, simultaneous actions. So while this, whoever this person is, is making copies of the keys that have been lifted out of his pocket, Crown and Catherine go to dinner. And while they're at dinner, this is where we get the moment where they're sort of feeling each other out and telling each other what they already know about each other because they've both done their homework. And uh, Crown tells her, it's obvious that you like men, but you don't seem to keep any of them around for long. Like, oh, you did homework on me. I've done homework on you. That's right. And you've been all over the world and you've never hung on to anyone. So what's your deal? And she says, men are messy. And so he he (laughs) offers a toast. Well, here's to the fear of being trapped. They have an understanding. And while they are sitting at dinner, of course, there are NYPD detectives that are very obvious that are at another table. So Crown does what Crown does. Being a gentleman thief, right? Manners matter. And so being a gentleman thief, he sends them a bottle of Burgundy, which later they thank him for. (laughs) (laughs) She asks him, why did you steal the painting? Were you bored? And And he never straight up admits to stealing the painting. That is correct. He does a beautiful job of talking around it. Yeah. And then he's like, can I ask you a personal question? Oh, definitely. And she thinks he's going to ask her something wildly inappropriate. And he's like, can I offer you some more espresso? And she's like, fine. Yes, I'd love some more espresso. But she's starting to feel a little on edge. 
Yeah. She's a little antsy about something. She excuses herself from the table. She gets up from the table, goes to the powder room. She's not going to the powder room. She's meeting her guy. This the is guy the key shows guy. up. They have this really super cool, like key handoff yeah. in that moment. So another, it's kind of like the coffee glug, glug, glug thing. She's very inelegant. She grabs the keys and uh, she and Thomas go back to her place. Mm-hmm. And uh, he takes her to the door. He kisses her goodnight. In the course of kissing her goodnight, she slips the keys back into his pocket, which she doesn't think he feels. And probably he's Thomas Crown. He absolutely <laughs> knows what's going on. But <laughs> she, she says, you are not coming in. I'm not going to sleep with the man I'm investigating. It doesn't seem like she's against sleeping with him. Oh, no. She, the reason she gives is people are watching. That's right. All right. There's pictures being taken. There's NYPD cops. I'm not going to invite you in through the front door. Right. right. You're a cat burglar. Figure out the back door. Figure. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, leaves. She's left swooning from the night and thinking about, you know, what the future may hold. The next day, our butler, Paul, Paul leaves the apartment. The minute he leaves the apartment, Catherine and this group of cops, which for some reason are dressed as cleaners, when Catherine is completely just dressed as Catherine, all of them descend on Crown's home. They manage to get through the front door with the copied key. They hack his alarm system. And, you know, we've got Mission Impossible. So they're they're inside. It gives them a chance. They're looking behind all the paintings. They're looking through his closets. So she makes it through his room. She makes it through his closet and finds her way into his study. And when you're in the rich guy's study, what's up on the wall? The apple-faced guy, Magritte. It's art. art. Of course it's the Magritte. But she knows there's more to this man than meets the eye. And as she's going over his, what I seem to remember is a very messy desk. Pretty messy. She feels underneath the desk. She finds the button. Gotta have the button. She pushes the button. The wall goes up and the next thing... She has the painting. We got it. It's wrapped in plastic. We haven't opened it yet, but this is, you know, we opened the wall and obviously there was the thing behind it. I've got it. I put it in plastic. We're going to take it and fingerprint it. So she she brings it back to the station house. Everybody cheers. Oh, you got the painting. Oh, fantastic. Good job. The experts arrive. The people to make sure that this is exactly right. The cops are pissed. The cops are pissed because this is inadmissible in court. But you can, from her perspective, again, she's not cops. All she she says is, I'm here for the painting. I'm here for the painting. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so whether they can use it against him or not, they bring in the forensic mm-hmm. experts. A guy looks at a painting, looks at the painting through the microscope. And turns around and says the phrase, you've got a ghost. Uh, so Mikey comes over and looks through the microscope and he looks at Catherine. <laughs> and Catherine says, well, Monet often reused his canvases. Yeah, He painted over old paintings. You know, he, he, he was poor. He reused his canvases. Mikey's like, you might want to come take a look at this. She so goes, she looks at the painting. Puts her eyes on the microscope, looks through, and the painting that's underneath this Monet is not another Monet. It's not. It's dogs playing poker. It's dogs playing poker. Pissed. Where is he? <laughs> Out for blood. Where is he indeed? He's at a ball. Of course he is. Dancing with a gorgeous blonde who's 20 years younger than he is. Very European looking. Yes. She eats one bean a day. (laughs) (laughs) Cheekbones that could saw through the wooden frame of a a Monet. You can lose an eye on her cheekbones. That's right. So they're dancing together at the black tie ball. Catherine has shown up. So this, okay, this was another one of those moments though, by the way, where I wasn't sure whether I wanted to like be the woman or make out with the woman. (laughs) Was she's wearing this, I'll never forget this. The, the model or Catherine? The model. Yeah. She's wearing this choker, this mm. tall, sparkly silver. Don't get me started on a choker. Thank you. It's this like ornate, elegant choker. And it's the whole outfit. It's the black dress and right. the choker. It's the whole thing. It's the whole and, thing. I, and, she's, and she's wearing a high, smooth pony. Her long blonde hair is perfectly smooth, perfectly straight down her back. Like 
I like that. Yes. <laughs> and Catherine has come to play. Catherine has come to destroy. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. (laughs) She says, I'm cutting in, basically. Mm -hmm. The blonde, like, scowls at her and stalks off. There has never been a scowl on anyone that matches this woman. So Catherine cuts in. She and Thomas. Thomas is having a lovely time. He's having a lovely time. (laughs) So they dance. Angrily Uh, so. Let's set the scene. Catherine has shown up to the black and white ball in a blood red scarf. Basically, she says, and he says, do you want to dance or do you want to dance? And this to me kind of recalls true lies. There's angry dancing and true lies too. There's always like an angry tango, but they do this like sort of semi choreographed dance. And as he spins her out, Mm -hmm. it becomes very clear that her dress is not opaque and she is not wearing underwear. Truth. And they are dancing as if they're they the want only to, ones there. And as if they want to slap each other around. And that's how this dance is going. And they dance <laughs> and it's great. And that leads to a kiss, leads to they go back to his place, they arrive at his place, everything comes off at once. We get the long-awaited conjoining of bodies, which doesn't take place in anywhere comfortable. We get sex on the stairs. Mm-hmm. Marble stairs. Marble stairs. We, which is, by the way, cold, hard, angular. Don't, uh, what, not a place I would pick. And no. then we get sex on his desk. We mentioned the cluttered desk before. Becomes Shuts uncluttered very quickly. Everything goes to the floor. Sex yeah. on the desk. So we have that. Cluttered with bodies. Cluttered with bodies. Paul brings breakfast, of course. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Paul brings her her favorite green coffee sludgy drink. He knows. She's appreciative of it. She understands. But a little unsettled, I a feel. A little unsettled. But she understands this is part of the game. And she tells him, I won't back off. To her delight, I think he says, I'd be hugely disappointed if you did. It's keep going your, great. Keep your enemies close. Uh, uh, you know, keep your keep friends close, close, enemies closer. It's super close. Especially if there are marble stairs nearby. <laughs> this, of course, takes... Thomas Crown back to therapy. The therapist, of course, is laughing. You know, he's got a problem and tells him, look, if you think you've met the female mirror of yourself and you think you're going to have some sort of rewarding relationship with this person, you might think again. Now, this is what is interesting to me because this framing device that they've used at the therapist's office, I can't tell where it fits in the timeline. It seems like he's recounting these events to her in real time. Yes. Because it also seems like it's set up that he's recounting to her the totality of all of these events. So I'm not really sure where it fits. It's true. And I think the way that it's shot, where it's sort of shot in limbo, it almost happens out of time. It could very well be happening in, in his own head, right? Oh, it's that's an interesting it, idea. Yeah. Of it, course it could be happening in his own head. He's got the sexiest therapist alive. <laughs> That's well, the therapist you? that Thomas Crown would conjure for right. himself. I mean, when I go to therapy, who I look for is Faye Dunaway. Sure. <laughs> That's never happened yet, but, you know, right. hope it springs eternal. So, you know, we have the therapy moment, and then we're back into the real world. And at the right. station, of course, NYPD has photos of her dancing with Thomas Crown. Of course, Mikey is upset about this. Do you know what yeah. you're doing? I don't think you know what you're doing. Do you know what you're doing? She assures him that she does. She's trying to play it up like she's just the honeypot. But like, it's clear that she's at this point in denial. So she agrees to another date. This is the one moment in the movie for me that seems extraneous. He, as their date, takes her up, as rich people do, into a glider. You know, one of those gliders that's it's pulled by a plane. It's an the ultralight. Air. It's an ultralight. You've got a pilot's license or something, right? I don't so have you, a pilot's license, but I, I was a student pilot. Yeah, you've flown fighter jets. So, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
He takes her up in this thing. They fly around. He makes her hold the stick. Ha ha. And giving her this sort of- Romantic music plays. Romantic music plays. She sort of gets this sense of power and control, steering the ultralight and And everything. And escape. The thing that I take away from that scene is that it's just the two of them. They're in an unpowered aircraft miles away from the city. The thing about an unpowered aircraft is that you go where the wind tells you to go. So in a way, they're both relinquishing control, which is a thing that they both do a lot in order to feel alive. Mm. They both like to dance on the edge a lot. And this is a thing that they understand about one another. So in a way, this is a little beautiful, intimate moment of freedom. And the plane touches down in like Connecticut. And she's actually, she's okay with that. That part's fine. And he whips out what at that point is very luxurious, a cell phone and uh, calls her ride. Oh no, this is a flex right here. Yeah. This is the flex on flex. They've flown the glider. And by the way, I'm glad you got something out of the glider scene. I, I got nothing out of that, but now that you explained it to me, scene. I understand. And it's also, by the way, from what I understand, again, understanding neither of us have seen the original that that's pulled from the original ah ah so he he pulls out the cell phone boop, boop, makes his call and what do they get they get a private jet mm-hmm. oh of course he's got a private jet he's thomas crown sure. but it's flying not over manhattan they've been gone for a while they've been gone for a while she said that's not, manhattan. Ever, that's not manhattan so the private jet takes them to this tropical island. They get out and are immediately, you know, loading into his car, which by the way, is this beautiful Shelby Mm -hmm. Cobra Mustang. Mm -hmm. Just, it's a gorgeous freaking car. They load into this sort of four-wheel Mustang and as they're loading all the baggage or whatever off the plane, she looks back and sees that they are unloading this crate that's just the right size for a painting. Mm -hmm. And it's intriguing but she doesn't mention it. I think there's a part of her that's thinking, oh, of course he's toying with me mm-hmm. by putting it right under my nose. Mm-hmm. Of course he brought it. So it, dri- it drives to the top of this like beautiful hill. Like it's apparently the tallest thing on the island. Yeah. And at the top of it is this island plantation style house. Just the, the most beautiful thing you could ever find. And so they get there. She says, oh, yeah, this, this must go over really well for whoever you bring here. And he gives her this response of, I don't bring anybody. I don't bring anyone here. Which could just be a line. Could be. But he's a lot of things, but he's not a dissembler. He's not a liar. Is he playing her? Probably not. It's beautiful. He has a closet full of clothes that are all her size. All her size. Waiting for her. It's the perfect thing. It's like, you know, when you imagine. Unrealistic expectations for a man. So while she's on the island with all of the clothes that fit her and the nice place and the beautiful and thing. And the food and, and the, the everything. And the food and the everything. What do you do? You enjoy it for a moment. So she she heads outside to watch the sunrise, towel draped appropriately over herself just to, mm-hmm. to cover the naughty bits, but mm-hmm. manages her way outside. And as she heads out to look at the sunset, what's waiting outside for her but the crate that's the size of a painting. And she's going to call his bluff. He really wants her to see it. And every time she turns around, he's there to tease her about the painting. Do you want to see it? I need to see it. I'm I'm, going to show you how how much I don't need to see it. She takes the painting, walks it over to the beautiful fire that they're sitting by, drops the painting in confidently, turns around, comes and sits back down. That's that's how much I don't need to see the painting. He's basically unresponsive. Uh But now she starts to second guess herself. Did she just put the f***ing Monet in the fire? She finally breaks and says, what well, What was in there? And he says, oh, no, nothing. It's just a nice little Renoir. A little Renoir. And then the flames burn away the crate. And you see, yes, it's a, a nice little. It's definitely, nice there's definitely Renoir. a painting says, oh, in there. Yeah. She, oh, oh Ren- And there she's, she's got a, I remember she has a glass of wine. She mm-hmm. sort of slushes the wine around. Says, oh, Renoir. Renoir. Copy. A, a, a copy. Right. And he goes, hmm. 
I guess we'll never know. <laughs> and she keeps herself from bolting for the fire. Yes. Just, okay, fine. Oh, God, fine. I give up. We as an audience never really know whether that was an actual Renoir that went up in flames. I think we're meant to believe he would yeah. destroy an original to fuck with her. Do you think it was an actual Renoir? Yes. Or did I he think- bring a copy knowing that she would throw it in the fire? I mean, it's tough because he is an art lover. So why would he burn a masterpiece? Mm. But maybe he's such an art snob that he doesn't consider that particular Renoir masterful. Sure. And also maybe he figures there are enough copies in the world that who's going to miss this one? Mm. You know, I think Thomas Crown is in love and he will do crazy shit to keep that. What is one painting to the love of a woman like this? There you go. She is art as well. Is she not? She is definitely art. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, after you burn a Renoir in the fire, what do you do? More sex. She wakes up the next morning. It's a beautiful morning. And she goes to find him and instead finds him sitting on the terrace talking to a man that she doesn't know in a foreign language. And then we get to the scene. This is the scene. This is the scene. This is the scene. We get to the scene where on the outside... Of this scene, the, this is what the scene is about. She is confronting him about this person. She says, she know, the man was a banker. He's transferring assets. Crown, you're, pre- you're preparing to run. I can tell that. And he's offering her, you know, money to stop chasing him. I'll give you $10 million. How he's w- basically confessing to doing it. This is the first time we've ever sort of, sort of seen him dip his toe into confessing things. I'll give you $10 million if you don't catch me. If you drop this, if you let this go, we can live happily ever after. And not only that... You know, she says, well, if you give me 10 million, what am I, how am I going to hide 10 million? And he says, I'll teach you. I'll teach you. He tells her I'm a thief. I'm used to laundering money. This is her first time dipping her toe into the other side where she's, yes. that, that how would I hide it could be facetious, but it's not. It's, this is intriguing to her. She kind of wants this. Yeah. That's the point of the scene. Yes. It's an important conversation. It's an important conversation. However. However. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation is hijacked a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. By two things. By by two things that have drawn our attention, which would be... Rene Russo's breasts. That's right. By the way, it's an overcast day. I'm sure it's still lovely. I'm sure it's She's great. making the most of it mm. by sunning toplessly yes. on the beach. And I did not know what was happening to me when <laughs> I... First of all... I was jealous. I was angry. How can I get sun on my tits? I need to know because they're not going to let me do that. Also, could the camera hang on to that just a little longer? And then I blacked out in the middle of a movie. That's the appropriate reaction, I I think, to a topless Renee Russo. And the other thing was like, Renee Russo does not have huge breasts. No. They're perfect. Perfect. They were made in a lab. They're, (laughs) and I think cinematically, That was an important choice because they're having this conversation in a way it's very emotionally honest and it's appropriate for her to be kind of naked while they're having it because she's in a vulnerable position and two of her most vulnerable parts are out while she is saying that she is potentially willing to be tempted by the dark side. And she has chosen to be vulnerable. Yes. No one has made her be that way. She has chosen to be there. And so therefore the vulnerability of, well, how would I hide it? That is a choice. Yes. And so we're all kind of uncomfortable and aroused. She's uncomfortable and aroused. And he also is beginning to show his cards because he also wants this very badly. He has spent his whole life trying to create a fantasy for himself that he still doesn't really believe. And now here is a person who can help solidify that for him, who can participate in that and who can who can actually give him something 
concrete to really invest in and believe in. He needs her to be on the same page with him on this. Yeah. And so in order to get her there, he's willing to do pretty much everything except directly say, I did it, whatever it costs him. It's a turning point in the film. I will think of those boobs until I die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. And then there's there's a little follow-up scene later where they've clearly made love. Clearly. Again. And she asks him, how big of a thief are you? And sort of self-deprecatingly, he says, well, if you count Wall Street, pretty mm-hmm. big. Mm-hmm. But if you mean art, I'm just an amateur. And that is the first moment he cops to being a thief. He plays off the first line. Well, if you count Wall Street, I'm pretty big. He's still walking that line of not outright admitting to it. But yep. that second bit of the line, if you mean art, I'm just an amateur. And she she asks him, well, how are you, you going to get out of this? What are you going to do next? You've confessed. I've got you. They'll get you. You're done. Yeah. And he says, it's, it's just a game, love. And he calls her love. And he says it softly and sweetly and intimately. He is trusting her with this. He's yeah. giving her everything now. And she does not know what to do now. But now back to reality. And what that means is going back to the NYPD. And, and Mike, Dennis Leary's there. If there's anything not sexy. It's, it's Dennis, Dennis Leary's Leary. tits. That's right. That's <laughs> de- <laughs> So Mikey notices that Catherine has a tan. Hey, nice tan. He knows exactly what she's been doing. Yeah. Hey, ni- nice tan there. She says she didn't find anything on the island. He has information waiting for her. I think this is personal. I think he's pissed that she's not taking this seriously, that he's at, she's having fun. She's literally sleeping with the enemy. He's not any closer to the case or to solving it. He's not going to be able to get there without her. And I think he wants to hurt her. He could follow this up on his own. I might disagree with that characterization. From his character, I don't know that this is a moment where he's trying to hurt her. I think this is more like a moment where you try to you know, slap sense into someone or you mm. try to throw cold water on them. I think he's doing that. But I don't know that that is his complete motivation. Mm. Mm. I think he's pissed at her that yeah. she was having a good time. It's not just that he thinks that it's bad for the case right. and that she's being played and that she's being foolish. I think he wants to hurt her feelings mm. a little bit. Well, the way he does that is with pictures. He says, hey, you want to know where your boy Crown was before he went to the island with you and had the sex? He's like, and, no. And after the island, when he had the sex, you don't no. want to know where he was? No, I don't want to no. know that. Are you sure? No. no, I don't yeah. want to know. Okay. So he okay. starts to wander away and she's like, yeah. So he gives her the pictures. And of course, inside the pictures, are, are, sorry, inside the envelope are pictures of Crown with the blonde model. This is the only thing that could hurt her right now. Yeah. And uh, she's so distraught, she can't put the photos back in the envelope. Just hands him the stack uh, back, like, just get rid of these. I don't care. And you can just see she's destroyed. And this cannot mean anything good for Thomas. Jump ahead, they're together in, like, a bar. Because he's asked her in the previous scene, you okay? And she says, yeah, and and leaves. And the next thing we see is him sidling up to her in a coffee shop where she's obviously gone after this. And his next line is, you know, I was once okay. And gives this story about how his girlfriend had left and then gotten married to someone else. And then he started, he hit the bottle and then other things happen, but he was okay. While it is my theory that he sent out to hurt her, I think that he regretted it immediately. Yeah. And he doesn't just feel bad. Like he has his reasons for doing it, but I think he also regrets that he made that choice and that he presented it in that way. And so now he's trying to connect with her like, damn it, you know, now I got to go find her and make her feel better. Right. I made her cry. I'm sorry. Not that he literally makes her cry. He would, she would never, never cry. She, she would, would never let a man see her cry. Yeah. No. You know, he gives her some time to think about things. And the next thing she does after she's thinking about things is she shows back up to him, slaps down an envelope 
full of pictures and says these are photos of the borders of Monet. So if you think about a, a canvas. canvas, the edges that sort of fold under on each side of this thing that are not visible to the public within the frame. They exist, but they're not visible. And right. so insurers want pictures of these things so that later they can compare them if the thing is ever stolen or damaged or anything else to make sure that it is the real It's painting. a fingerprint of the painting. And so she gives him these photos and he says, well, you know, great, but how long you been holding on to these? Five days. Because he hadn't earned them in her opinion, but now that he's connected with her, she feels like she owes him. The borders can lead potentially to the forger of Crown's Monet. Because over it, the, the dogs playing poker. Over the dogs playing poker, because if, right. the, if the forger has been in the presence of the actual one, then the borders are going to be part of what this person has painted. And right. so if we understand what's on the borders, then we can potentially find out who the, the, the forger, forger was. She's had them for five days. They haven't been opened. And her response to him is, well, they're open now. Game is on. We are not friends. Go get him. We will be right back. When you're done listening to this episode, why not pick up a great book? Ask your bookseller about Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts. Yes, I said thefts of the Mona Lisa. How the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection, and the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. You are back and listening to Subgenre, our episode on the Thomas Crown Affair from 1999. I am here with my good friend, Charlotte. How are you doing, Charlotte? I'm doing great. I have ice cream. Well, you're going to need the ice cream. You got to power through. We're going to power through the ending here. I'm doing it. Okay. I'm doing it. Here we go. We're going to dive back into our feature presentation. We're on hour 12. Hour 12 of this recording. This will be down to like 40 minutes or something by the end of it. Catherine's out at dinner with Crown, but she is not really feeling it this time around. You know, he's offering no, her a fancy necklace. She's a little sullen. She's a little withdrawn. He's offering her a, a fancy necklace. Oh, isn't that beautiful? She says she's kind of in her a own. Fancy, a fancy necklace. <laughs> what kind of necklace is it, Josh? It's it's the one with the V in it that I can't pronounce. The bu- the, bubble, the one bu- with the V the in Bulgari. it. The am I Am I yeah, saying that right? It's a, bul- it's a f-ing Bulgari necklace. And so. It's gorgeous. It's just, diamonds for days. You know, it's great. Thank you for giving that to me. But she's still in her own head. She's looking out the window. He knows something's up and says, uh, this is the most fantastical element of this film, <laughs> which is that the man keys into the woman being upset and pursues it. Mm, until right. She doesn't tells him what's going doesn't on. ignore it and hope it goes away. No. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I can tell from what you're saying and how you're looking that this is about Anna. This is where we get the name of the sharp-cheeked uh, blonde model. Actually, I think, doesn't Leary give us that when he shows her the He photos? might. He might have given us her name before, but this, this is the first time he sort of brought Anna up in her presence. Anna, who is, I think, the screen debut at that point of uber-beautiful European whoever, uh, Esther Kenyatis, um, who yeah. would go to show up in a few other things playing a beautiful, sharp-cheekboned woman as well. Yeah. But, but says, yeah, I know it's this is about 
Anna. Uh, well, I I let the cops photograph me with her. Right. That was that she was on purpose. Talk about it. I don't want to know why. Do you want to know why? No, I don't want to know why. No. Are you sure you don't want to know why? No, I don't want. Please know don't why. make me know why. She doesn't want to know why so much that she tells Paul to stop the car in the middle of Central Park, jumps out in the middle of Central Park, and kind of just hightails it into the woods, pursued by Crown, who catches up to her and basically lays it down for her. I did let them photograph me on purpose because I needed to know that you wanted me and not just the painting. That's so manipulative. Even if his intentions are authentic, even if he's got a good point, fuck him. <laughs> and that's kind of where she is on this. And this is he played her. not an unusual thing to see in a movie like this, by the way. I think there's a lot of uh, several other examples of I people going, this trope, I needed this. All you had to do was ask me and trust that the answer that I gave you was the truth. This is not a way to start a relationship. Uh, This is not the last time he's going to sort of run game on her to test how she feels. So he says, I did it. I want to make sure you wanted me, not just the painting. I can leave tomorrow, but so can you. She gives it a little bit of thought. Yeah, but we'd be fugitives. And he says, fugitives with means. And that's all the difference in the world. This scene hurt me, Mm. not just because of the way that he manipulated her, but because you can see in the way that she responds to it after the worst of her anger has abated. That I think the thing that she's maybe angriest with him about is that she wants this so badly and he knows that she wants this. And yet there is still a part of her, the practical part of her that feels like she can't have this. And why is he dangling this thing in front of her? that she can't have. In a way, it's like he's tormenting her with it. And I think there's a part of her that just wishes that he would just let it go. And she seems so hurt and vulnerable in this. And like, you make it sound so nice. Like, where would we go? What would we do? Oh, we'd be fugitives where we'd have all the money in the world. You know, and it's like, you've been living in a dreamland your whole life and you still are. And I want to be with you on this, but it's delusional and insane. And why would you put that in front of me? I can't take you up on it. You're not serious. She She wants wants it it with everything. Yeah. And that's why it hurts. And that's why it doesn't feel like she can have it. But it, of course, leads us back into another therapy session. Very brief. Thomas Crown is upset and the therapist finds it funny and says, you know, basically Peter Pan's deciding to grow up and finds out there's no place to land. And this was this was the one moment in that whole therapy shtick that they do that I didn't quite understand the scene. I think why it didn't work is that in it, she is almost maliciously unsympathetic. Yes. Up to this point, she is maybe somewhat antagonistic to him to push on him, to get him to tell her the truth. She wants him to be honest with her, but it's for his own good. She's a therapist. That's why she does this. And at this point, she's directly antagonizing him when he's in a low point. And it doesn't seem to be with the end of getting him to tell her anything else more meaningful. She's just being mean and it doesn't work. Even if her delivery had been different, if it had just been more thoughtful and direct. Instead of the laughing and and the kind of finger pointing. The mockery. Yep, I agree. Well, back at the police station, Catherine previously has given Mikey photographs of the borders of this painting. Mikey is back to tell her that the borders match perfectly. And so what that means is that it's time to go see forgers. It's time to figure out who forged this painting. So they head off to meet this one particular forger named Friedrich Golchin, uh, played by uh, the actor Charles Keating, who now says, yeah, yeah, I used to forge. I I don't forge anymore. Now I'm essentially insert rich people into old master I've gone paintings. legit. I've gone legit. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but that's the story. Right. He gives a name. He says, oh, I know who did this. The person who did this is a man named Heinrich Nutzhorn. And Which so is they, a great name. It's great. 
So, so they go to see Heinrich Nutzhorn. Well, where is Heinrich? Heinrich I can't say it. Where is Heinrich Nutzhorn? Nutzhorn. Nutzhorn. He's in prison, of course, where a forger might be. So they go to see Heinrich Nutzhorn, who, by the way, and, and until I watched this movie, had totally forgotten, had not made the connection, is played by Mark Margolis. Mark Margolis being Hector Salamanca from Breaking Bad. Yep. One of the best Bad. freaking actors so on the planet. He's so good. Yep. He's so good. Yep. And they ask him who painted the fake. And he says, oh, you know, it's this guy, Friedrich Goldschein. Well, they say, Goldschein told it, it was it was you. Wait, what did they say it was you? And so that's the end of the conversation until there's just this moment where Nutzhorn looks at the canvas, sees something on it that only he recognizes, and it's something that delights him, and Catherine notices. Yep. There's something between she Crown and Nutzhorn. We don't know what that is yet. So there's a thing. She has to figure it out. There's some connection with the forger that she has to prove. In the meantime, she's being in love, and she's going shopping. and She's kind of reconciled with Crown, but now it feels very much like this thing's on edge. It's not quite that they're going through the motions, but there's an understanding now that time is of the essence. That's right. And this fun, fantastical shopping experience that they're having and all the stuff that they're doing, the, the meals that they're doing together, like this could all blow up at any time. It's a summer camp romance at this point. And that gets accelerated by the fact that Mikey has followed up on her hunch and found out that Crown and Newtshorn actually own a gallery together that has sponsored these shows around the world. And by the way, more than one of these shows has included an artist named Tyrol Newtshorn. It's Tyrol. Tyrol. And this puts the idea in their head, ah, Newtshorn couldn't have painted it because he's in prison but he has a son. And what Catherine saw in Nutzhorn, that little sparkle in the eye, that was parental pride. His son's out there forging Hi. stuff. And he's probably in New York City. Mikey takes this moment to tell her, whether whether he really means it or whether he's, you know, again, trying to make a point, says, you know, I, I underestimated you. I You'd never let anybody play you. That gives Catherine second and third and 15th thoughts yeah. about Crown. I really like Mikey and Catherine's dynamic in this film. Initially, it's set up as though it's going to be another antagonistic relationship relationship. They, you know, those two characters don't spend a ton of time on screen together, but there's a development of a mutual respect and understanding there that in some ways feels more authentic mm. than her relationship with Thomas Crown. And you feel, you feel kind of bad that it doesn't like Mikey. He's going through a lot of the motions at the beginning where he's like hitting on her and trying to get her to go out with him and stuff. And I hate this guy, this poor oaf. He doesn't know any better, but once he kind of gets over that and sees her as a person and, and a and a person who's really dedicated to what she does and a person who can show him up. I would watch another film about their adventures. To me, it's almost kind of like she's the insurance investigator and runs in these highfalutin circles and he's the street level New York detective and he runs in these sort of low end circles. But in some way, they're both cops. They're like in a different world, in a different could it have worked? You know, I don't know. It's kind of sweet. There's something sweet about it, but. They never really understand each other. No. They respect each other. They see similarities in one another. Yeah, they approach this case in totally different ways, but there is an understanding without real understanding. If they were to try to, to make it be a thing, like they'd be fighting all the time. You know, she'd be bored by him. He'd be overwhelmed by her. She's too visceral for yeah. him. He's a simple man. <laughs> he wants his goldfish. <laughs> But there's still something bittersweet about it yeah. that I really, I really it's nice. appreciate. It's a nice relationship. Yeah. And it's it's after that moment where he tells her that, I mean, she's always sort of 
half entertained the notion of what if with Crown. And it's in this moment where there's some concrete steps that start to get taken. And she calls her accountant. I'm assuming it's her accountant. She calls her accountant and says, look, if I had to leave here in eight hours. What could I take? What can I take? And I don't know. Let me go look. Mikey sees what looks like her packing. She plays it off. No, I'm just organizing. You're not that lucky. I'm not leaving you yet. He tells her, look, there's no Nutzhorns, Tyrol or otherwise that have visited the old man in prison. But there was a Nudsen that went three times in the last three months. Any, anything there? Nothing? Maybe? Okay. He's trying to help her. He's trying to give her something to ground her. She's kind of made a bit of a decision in her own head, I think. And so her role then is she runs out to a cab, takes it to Crown's house, I, I think intent on... She's doing something that she very rarely does. She's worked herself up to it. She's decided she's going to run. And it's taken a lot to make her decide that she's going to run. So she runs to Crown, bursting through the door, ready for this big moment. And who does she find? Sitting on his bed with her legs half extended, sultrily moping into the middle distance. Cheekbones. While he packs in another room. The last person she wants to see. Anna is there. Her only true antagonist in this film. Anna is there in all of her RBF glory and and crown is packing it looks like they're leaving together Catherine has had enough that's the straw and she turns to go uh he chases her down and stops her you know she fights him off who the hell is that crown starts to give an explanation she works for me i owe her money i cannot tell you who she is or else i'm going to compromise who she is and there's even there's even like when he says i owe her money she's like of course you do of course you you do right i know what you fired this woman to do for you It's her worst nightmare and he can't tell her the truth. And it's like, she doesn't know he can't tell me the truth. He doesn't want to tell me the truth. And there's a part of her that's like, I was better off not knowing any of this. From the moment in the car, she told him that she didn't want to know. This is why she didn't want to know. And her response is, how in the world can I trust you? And he says, you can't. I'm going to trust you. I have the Monet. I have the Monet. And I'm going to put it back. Remember that thing I stole? I'm going to put it back. I'm going to put it back. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to put it back at 4 p.m. You can tell the cops and they'll come for me and I won't resist them. Or you can meet me at the heliport. And we fly off into the sunset. We can get out of here and nobody has to see us again. And we can have the life that we deserve. This is everything that she wants and she cannot buy into it. There's no way that this can be real. It's awful. They have a moment where it looks like maybe there's a kiss. Maybe things are going to happen, but she just can't. This is, it's a bridge too far. She bolts out of the house. You know, you get this moment of walking in the rain and, you know, the set. like her hair. Her hair, her hair, (laughs) standing in the rain and getting her hair wet and everything. She looks and sees herself in a shop window and just whatever it is about that moment. She's rock. She's at rock bottom. And what what do you do when you're at rock bottom? You show up at Mikey's house. And so (laughs) she goes to Mikey's house and and says, we need to talk. And the the implication being, I'm going to flip on this guy. She's so angry. She's so hurt. She's so confused. The only thing that she has left is the thing that she came here to do, which is the right thing. Which then turns us into essentially the third act here. This is the home stretch. So she has gone and she has told the cops, here's where he's going to be. Here's what he's going to do, what he says he's going to do. This is where y'all need to be in order to put an end to this. So we're in our last day of this story. We are at the Met again, of course. The cops are there in bulk, hanging out, waiting and laying a trap for our guy who is going to show up and put the painting back on the wall somehow. Mikey assures Catherine that she's doing the right thing simultaneously cops are swarming the you know cheekbones apartment uh looking for her (laughs) but she's not there she's gone gone. and mikey is able to tell Catherine that they have tracked down that nudson you remember the one that visited the old man three times in prison it wasn't a son it was a daughter and it was tyrell 
Anna Nutzhorn. Nutzen. Nutzen. Or Nutzhorn. Yeah. Nutzen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nutzen. Yeah. Going, going by Nutzen. Yeah. She was the forger. That changes everything. He's not in love with her. He just paid her to do crime. And he's her guardian. Yeah. That's the thing oh, that Mikey yeah, reveals the is the yeah. dad went to jail. Crown became her guardian, put her through college, et cetera, et cetera. She's basically like the daughter he never had. And yep. so Catherine realizes, oh, crap. What have I done? But the ball is already rolling because right then. The music starts to pick up. Crown arrives at the Met. He's wearing an overcoat. He's carrying a briefcase. And this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. Yeah. He wants to be seen. And I love, he puts himself in the middle of the entryway. He knows where all the cameras are. And he, he looks up at the camera, puts his arms out, and he turns slowly to make sure that everybody watching him can see right where he is. He knows that they know that he's there. He is daring them. And so then this thing starts, you know, the cups game, you put the little ball under the cup, you watch yep. the ball under yep. the cups. Yep. Here we go. Here's the ball. It's like Carvanti. Yep. Yeah. Here it, we go. And by the way, this entire final sequence, which is brilliant. This is a brilliant, brilliant heist sequence and kind of a bait and switch thing all plays out to, you know, we've had great music from Bill Conti up to this point, but the music selection here is genius. It's yes. it's, a, it's a Nina Simone tune called Center Man. And there's a piece of it that's percussive. It's hard to describe here. I don't have a piece to play for you, but go watch the movie. It is the perfect musical piece for this, this particular so part of the movie. It's got soul. Yeah. It's got texture. Mm -hmm. And lyrics, and, uh, you know, Center Man, where, where will you run to, etc. So Endgame is on. Crown has turned around, made sure everybody can see him, puts on his bowler hat, carries his briefcase, and off we go. The cops swarm. They know where he is. They swarm in to get him. But right as they start to do that, he sets his briefcase down and picks up another briefcase from a man in the lobby, a man who just happens to be wearing an overcoat, a bowler hat, and carrying a briefcase. And it's right. at that moment that tons of these guys appear. Every possible place on every staircase, every hallway, and on every security okay. camera. Men with bowler hats for days. And that's when Catherine realizes, oh, he outthought we're not all of us. We're not going to get him. And she's so happy. The cops are losing their minds. But, yeah, uh, but where is he? Where is he? Get him. <laughs> Somebody get him. Somebody find him. And the cops are like flooding the lobby and shoving pedestrians out of the way. Yep. And they start grabbing guys with bowler hats and just whipping them around. And none of them are the right guy. In the middle of all this, Peretti notices for the first time the Magritte exhibition sign, the one we saw at the beginning that they walked by with the guy with the bowler hat and the apple and yep. everything, the son of man. And, and is just delighted himself yep. that this whole thing yep. is happening. And every time the cops grab a guy in a bowler hat, like at one point they kick open one of the suitcases and it's just photocopies of, of the son of man. It's just a beautiful, elegant little fuck you just over and over and over again. And so as all of this chaos is ensuing, Crown casually pulls a smoke alarm. Takes off the bowler hat and the overcoat, Changes by the way, because now they're now that's what they're chasing and he's going to become the opposite. So he pulls the smoke alarm and not only do people start to exit the museum, but importantly, the sprinklers go off and to protect the painting. Well, he rolls he rolls some smoke devices. Remember that remember oh, that right. gate that comes oh, down yeah. over the impressionist wing? It's yep. yeah. coming down again he's because there's smoke. He's got these little smoke. like, it's very James Bond. Movies. It is. He, he stole them from the set of the, the James Bond movies he was on. <laughs> 
and brought them to this movie. And he, he basically rolls these three little things under the gate. They put off smoke. Smoke fills the Impressionist gallery. Fire alarms are going off. And because fire alarms are going off, they've got these steel walls that sort of slide together to essentially cover over the art so that it isn't damaged by the sprinkler systems. Here I'm they sure come. that happens at the North Carolina Museum of I'm Art. I'm sure well. it happens. <laughs> I guarantee you that doesn't even happen at the real Met. There's no way they got real sprinklers at the Met. But here, here come the walls. So the steel walls come in. They're closing over the paintings. Everything is covered and protected until the very last second they are closing over the painting. The frame. Of the painting that Thomas Crown had donated to replace the, the, the San Giorgio, the Pizarro. And it has this really gaudy, thick, heavy, ornate gold frame. Yes. That when you first look at it, you're like, that's a lot of frames. Yes. Well, and here it it's comes. probably also got a titanium lattice inside <laughs> of it because the walls stop on it and water pours over the painting. And what's stopping it beyond the frame itself is down in the track, there are two pencils that have been left right, there right. <laughs> that are blocking this wall from closing. So the, the end result is the wall can't close you over that like, painting. <laughs> and so water is just flooding over this Pizarro that he's given, ruining the, the painting. Colors are running. And the colors are starting to run. And as the colors are starting to run, we see that underneath something it, is happening. Something is happening. There, there's something underneath these colors that are running. Mikey's <laughs> running through all this smoke. He's trying to get back to the painting to see if Crown is there putting the painting back on the wall or whatever. And this paint is running off of it to reveal underneath the painted Pizarro, the Pizarro was a fake and underneath was the real Monet. It's been here the whole time. Mikey is tearing ass through, through the museum to get to the Impressionist wing. He gets there, finds this painting, like weeping with water just as the Monet has been revealed and he reaches down into the track and pulls one of the pencils out and it says crown acquisitions. Crown acquisitions. It's <laughs> it's brilliant. That painting, if we remember back to the beginning of the movie, that painting has essentially been on the wall since a day or two after the original was stolen. And so he stole it and about a day or two later he returned it, but he returned it with a forgery painted on top of it that they put back up on the wall. And remember the phrase, oh, I donated because it fit the space. Well, it fit the space because it was the same paint. Perfectly. It was perfect. So water stops pouring down. The walls retract. The walls start to retract. Everything is exactly as it should be. Yes. Except for one thing. There's a painting missing that isn't the San Giorgio. It's the painting that Catherine said that she would steal. Uh huh. Catherine, seeing this sign for her, checks her watch, sees she's got time, and she decides to make a run for it. She's heading to the pier to meet him at four o'clock. If she can get there. On her way out, Mikey catches her. And Mikey has figured it out way before Catherine has figured it out. And you know what? He wants this for her now. He wants this for her because I think he kind of wants this for both of them. Mm. Like the thing with his girlfriend didn't work out. Like shit has not worked out for Mikey in his life. But he's like, can still work out for this broad. She's got to get out of here. And so as she's picking up like the last of her papers, he's like, are you done? You good? And she's like, we got the painting back, so yeah. I guess. There's that back. other one that's missing. Yeah, that's not the one I was sent here that's for, not, so I'm so out of here. That's someone else's problem. I got to go. And he just says, say hi to him for me. She says, well, I'm I'm out of it, so I guess you're going to yeah. have to pursue that missing painting by yourself. And basically, Mikey tells her, yeah, I don't care about that painting. I got other <laughs> things to do. This is like, this is rich people stealing from rich people. I don't care. I don't yeah. care. It's his kind of way of saying, you know, we're good. We're good. Yeah. I'm not going to come after you unless I'm made to. 
say hi to Crown for me. And she kisses him, which is probably the best thing that has ever happened to right. him ever. She tells him he's a good man. And he's like, tick tock, yeah. basically. And off she goes. And, and off she goes. It's so good. It's so pure. And this is her mad dash. This is her mad dash to paradise. So she rushes out. She grabs a cab. They speed through traffic. Of course, it's New York. So she gets stuck. So she she jumps. She's like, I'm going to walk jumps out of the cab, runs to the pier, runs past guards at the pier who are like, ma'am, you can't go out there, gets out onto the heliport at the end of the pier, finds him standing oh. there in his bowler hat and briefcase and everything, facing, looking out at the Hudson, and he turns around, and it's not crowned. I just want, I feel like I need to interject. This is two years before 9-11, mm. and all of this is much easier than it would have been three years. The fact oh, yeah. that she's just like, no, I'm just going through. And they're like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure even three years Re- later, I think Renee Russo could still get through. I think problem. she could. You know, that's probably true. It's not crown. He turns around. It's not him. It's a guy in a bowler hat. It's a guy with a briefcase. He hands her a valise of some sort and says, yeah. crown wanted you to have this. And I think it's at that moment, all of us as an audience realize, oh no, he's gone. He's gone. He's left without her. She's left with whatever this is inside the thing. This stupid consolation prize. This is the consolation you prize. Is, something is amiss with the universe. These two are supposed to be together. How are we going to fix this? Well, inside that valise is her painting. He has brought her that, but, but it doesn't hair, matter. But it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. It's meaningless at this point. Exactly. He's left without her. So what does she do? She's got to get back to Europe to go talk to her bosses, to go tell them this thing is done and whatever. So she heads to the airport, walks to the counter to check in for her flight, looking the worse for wear, so much so that the lady at the counter notices that this lady is not right. This was feminism to me. you got to figure that the woman working the counter seen this a million times today. She knows not just that this person's had a bad day, but that something <laughs> really tragic has befallen this individual. She has also just handed her a valise and said, please make sure this gets to police headquarters. <laughs> that right, but that like, might also point to the fact that she's had a I don't a think so. Honestly, like, I don't think that's the weirdest thing that has happened to that woman. That's probably that true. Day. She's seen weirder shit than that. Yeah. You know, but it's more like she's so, she's so, this beautiful woman hands her this weird suitcase and then is just destroyed. And, you know, when you see your friend who's just gone through a horrible breakup, you're just like, what can I do? There's and no her response, by the way, to the woman is the same response that she gave to Mikey earlier, which is, I'm fine. Which puts her then in the middle of the night on a flight to God knows where in Europe. She's sitting in her first class seat. She is by herself. She is Catherine, who has been super strong to this point. And it's that She's doing something alarming. She's crying. This is the first time we have seen her do that for anything. And this is the moment. Everything is to the end as far as she's concerned of where it can be. And so this is the moment. She knew the fantasy wasn't real, but she's tired of being right. She's tired of men. She's tired of all of it. She just wanted this one thing. Why couldn't she have this one thing? Now she's alone again. And end of movie. No, of course it's not the end of the movie. (laughs) This is the adversarial relationship thing. We know it's coming to some sort of conclusion. We just don't know how it's going to get there. And at this moment where everything is lost, all hope is lost, and she's crying, a hand reaches itself between the seats to hand her a handkerchief, and this Irish lilted voice tells her, (laughs) Lassie, don't cry. And she turns... And it's him. And he's sitting, (laughs) it's sitting, he's sitting behind her. He's been sitting behind her the whole time. He's manipulated her again. Again. 
This was he's the other test. This, he uh, tested her before this, and now he's tested her again. She's over it and she hurls herself at him. This is all pre 9-11. This <laughs> is how over it she is. Is she quite literally, there's no figuratively about it. She literally flings herself over the seat. Did you set this up? Tackles him and straddles him in his seat, re- basically ready to beat the crap out of him. But then of course, instead of attacking him and getting too angry, the moment of release is here. They kiss. It's catharsis. It's the catharsis. Catharsis, the flight attendant who has seen this crazy woman Damn. jump over the seat onto this person, you know, starts to tell her, please don't do that on this airplane. Uh, but again, pre 9-11. So they let it go and let them hump and that, in the seat. It's kind of nice. Oh, it's nice. Oh, isn't that nice? We just want them to have nice things. Yes. And, and the we, flight attendant's like, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and Catherine is given the last line in the movie. She leans over into his ear and says, I'll tell you what. You pull a stunt like that again, I'll break both your arms. And that's the end of the and movie. And scene. And scene. And that line, I have come to learn, is again a reference to the Son of Man picture where oh. uh, one of his arms is bent behind him at such an angle that it looks like it's broken. And so oh. potentially this is a reference to I will break the other arm. And that's it. We get our happy ending. We have had we've had art theft. We have had relationship ups and downs. We've had playboys and sexy ladies and and marble staircase sex and <laughs> cheekbones. And it leads us all to this moment on the airplane. So and, satisfying. And the a only satisfying. How how satisfying? Crazy satisfying. So good. Moment on the plane. And that, my friends, is the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair. Which means it is time for rave, rental, or refund. This is the point where we take a little look back at this movie and say, hey, is it a rave? Am I giving it the four, five, six, 19 stars that it should have? Is it a rental? Is it, it was fine, I, but I'd wait to get it from the Redbox or the Blockbuster or whatever there is around here now. Oh or yeah, is it the a, old Blockbuster. The old Blockbuster. Or is it a refund? I didn't like it. Please give me my money back. Rave, rental, or refund? Absolutely a rave for me. Bisexual awakening. Sure. Beautiful people doing beautiful things. Right. Benevolent cops, which is probably the greatest fantasy of all. <laughs> um, everybody gets what they want. Everybody gets what they deserve. Great soundtrack. Yep. Great story. Great writing. Great pacing. Melodramatic. Absolutely implausible, but like perfect escapism. A hundred percent. It's got Renee Russo's boobs. That's it. That's what it has. It's a rave for me. It, it is does. a phenomenal movie. It is well put together. It is well paced. Just a joy to watch. It's a beautiful pick. Yeah, love it. We got two raves on the Thomas Crown Affair in 1999. One of these days we'll we'll watch the original and we'll talk about the original and see if if we get to the same place, but fantastic. So that brings us to the end, I think, of this first episode of Subgenre Season 2, Episode 1. Everybody, thank you for coming back for Season 2. If you're just joining us for Season 2 and you haven't listened to Season 1, by all means, please go back, take a listen to all those movies in Season 1. We're talking about submarines. I promise you, even if you aren't into submarines, you're going to like all the episodes there. It was a good time. Charlotte, again, I want to say a huge thank you to you for coming and gracing us with your presence again and all of the unique je ne sais quoi that you bring to uh, subgenre. Thank you for coming. It has been a joy to have you here. Is there anything you want to plug? Do it. You got stuff no. going on. I produce a podcast. I'm not, I don't host it. I'm not on it, but I make it. It's called Fish of the Week, which I produce with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service of Alaska. We're, we're doing some science. We're doing sociology. We're doing all the things. It's weird. It's funny. It's educational. It's a great time. I've already learned some, some things that I, I could probably stand unlearn. 
actually. <laughs> so uh, you could get that. You can get that wherever you get your podcast. And if they want to find you on the on the TikToks or other places, where do they find you? They can find me on the TikToks and on Instagram as Cavatica, C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A, or on Twitter as Cavaticat, C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A-T. Charlotte Moore Lambert, thank you so much for being on Subgenre again. Can we have you back another time? Hell yeah. Thanks for having me, friend. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, TikTok's Cavatica, Charlotte Moore Lambert. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza, featuring Solar Flare. If you love this show and need more, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you choose to listen. And if you can, leave a five-star review. Trust me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation, legally acquired, of course. You'll find the link to do it, more about our show, and all of our archived episodes from Season 1 at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at SubgenrePod. Come back soon for our next episode of Season 2, all about those charming thieves. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap! Kabunki. Oh.